you like to, to see the progressive members of Congress, whether it's the original squad or people like Pramila Jayapal and Ro Khanna, what would you like to see them do, doing and saying differently right now? Yeah, I think they're politicians. To me, politicians are politicians. I see them all the same, Brie. I really do. Mm-hmm. It is a different it is a different makeup to be a politician. I've worked with enough of them behind the scenes to know. They all fold. At some point, they fold. They call it compromise. Our job is to make sure they compromise towards our way, period. And so the same way that the left is hollering about, oh, mansions, owners, 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 you progressives need to stop giving your last $2 to these people that are folding, mm-hmm. period. It's a hustle. It's a con game to me. I'm going to call it what it is. Mm. And then the Democrat side says, look, all the progressives, they keep taking their money. All those poor, dumb progressives, they keep giving their money. Guess what? They're right. The same way the progressives said, oh, you dumb Democrats, you keep giving your vote and they're not doing anything. Well, yeah, mm. and you progressives keep giving your money and they're not doing nothing either. So mm. it's the pot kettle, calling the kettle black from my independent view. Mm. Cut off their money. Uh, let me call it out clearly. Um, Ro Khanna. What he was the one saying, it's time we put faith back into Joe Biden. It's time we put faith back in the mansion. Is he a progressive or not? Why do y'all keep funding his money? Why do you keep sending him money? Oh, yeah, but no, no, no. Don't worry about that. It's the corporation's money. No, you're taking grandma so-and-so's last two dollars. The nerve of you, shame on you mm-hmm. for taking the poor people's money mm-hmm. and then folding and switching it up because you ran for office and now it's, oh, it's all about compromise. We this or that. No, you a fraud and y'all need to start. If I was a progressive, I would be calling out these frauds step by step. That's Bernie Sanders included. Any mm-hmm. one of you bend the knee, any one of you do what we don't tell your ass to do, the money stops, the promotion stops. Mm-hmm. And to me, progressives, I will tell you, and you know, they lied and said, I praise Trump. I never praised no damn Trump. I've never said, <laughs> I like Trump. What I have said, I've always said I'm against Trump. What I said is, I respect how he lays the smack down mm-hmm. and how his voters make damn sure. You have Republicans who are willing, I'm not saying what they're doing is right, but they're willing to go to jail, Bree. Mm. just to keep their promise. They're willing to go to contempt just to keep their promise because they know that their voters will vote their ass out. They know that the money will stop. They know that the power will stop. So Trump don't give a shit what he got to do, fascists or all, to uh, (laughs) appease his voters. Why is it that progressives are not scared of their base in that way? Do you really believe that out of 350 people in Congress, it's only six people that believe that? Bullshit. Manchin is the fall guy. It is many people behind him that are saying, hey, do this. We're going to let you be the fall guy, including Joe Biden and my own personal cons- uh, conspiracy belief. But also, where are these progressives that said that, y'all gonna, that you're going to write? You guys should be calling them out day and day. So it's not about what I want to hear from those politicians mm. because they're all shapeshifters. Mm. I want to hear from the people. These people that keep going after these corporations, when are you going to go after the, this corporation called the progressive movement mm. that's literally taking every damn dollar you have? Who's going to mm. have the balls to do that? Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of The Debrief. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray, and that was a clip from the latest episode of Bad Faith Podcast. It was from Monday's premium episode, and it featured a woman that I've been following for a long time and whose energy and political analysis I've appreciated as she tangles on Fox News and also on her own podcast, Straight Shot, No Chaser, Teslin Figaro. She went kind of viral last week with a clip, and I think if you listen to that, you understand why she really pulls no punches. And even though she does not herself identify as a progressive, 
She worked for the Bernie 2016 campaign and I think has a really sharp analysis of where the progressive movement gets it wrong sometimes. She asked a very important question. Why isn't the progressive why aren't progressives in the house? Why aren't Democrats as a whole as afraid of their base and disappointing their base as Republicans are? We see figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene willing to give up these committee appointments and other things that are really held up as deeply precious and the excuse for why progressives can't stand their ground on any number of issues, including force the vote. We see her willing to give that all up so that she can do all kinds of crazy in the House, and we can't get progressives to take much more moderate and, of course, more productive stands on our end. What will it take? Will it take doing what Teslin articulates here, which is to stop giving money to progressive candidates? Are we concerned about the ability of centrist corporate Democratic candidates of to Rest what little control progressives, what little gains progressives have made. If we do so, what is the balancing act to be done there? Who do we still believe in among the progressives who are elected? To what extent should we continue to invest in upcoming candidates? These are questions that we've been batting around a bunch. There's also a lot of other things that were discussed in this week's ep- episode. Um, which patrons well know, but if you are not a patron, there is also a Another lengthy clip, about 20 minutes long, that was posted this afternoon to Bad Faith YouTube. If you don't already subscribe to the Bad Faith YouTube channel, you should take this moment to do so because if you haven't, you will be missing uploads like this from premium episodes that you otherwise will not be hearing in your podcast feed. So I see we have a queue that is already formed. Let's get right into it. Grace, you are up first. Unmute yourself when you're ready. Grace changed her mind <laughs> or maybe just press the wrong button. If you get back into the queue, Grace, I'll bring you, I'll bring you up, but let's hear from Nick. How are you doing, Nick? What's on your mind? Hey, just fine. I'm, I'm sorry that your one female listener bailed. Uh, <laughs> that's got to be the bane of your existence these maybe, days. Maybe uh, she'll be back. Oh, this seems like she's back. It was just a user error, but what, what's on your mind, Nick? Uh, so after having listened to the interview with Teslin and I haven't, uh, this was kind of my first introduction to her, but uh, I was having a really hard time kind of figuring out what her kind of underlying political ideology was. Like, uh, I, I agree with the whole points of uh, withholding uh, donations and support for, you know, so-called progressives that do nothing but disappoint us. But I I was trying to really figure out, like, based on your understanding with her, is, is her whole independent political leaning more like libertarian? Or what would you say it even is? I mean, I'm curious why it matters to you, Nick. Uh, just because that's when I start to get really suspicious. I mean, the whole, uh, I, I don't know. I, she was kind of losing me with this whole, uh, like, trying to go after people that are interested in, like, small businesses or entrepreneurs. Just because I've, I have yet to meet one that is at all kind of... Uh, on my side politically, really. I mean, every small business psycho that I've ever known in my life were among the most antagonistic to anything that's, like, giving people any sort of a social safety net, just because I, I feel like it's part of this general sociopathy in this country that, like, no one in this country deserves anything just for being a human, uh, just deserving of dignity for that. It's all this mindset of people have to have done something to earn any sort of support within the state. And I feel that overwhelmingly from that kind of contingent of the population. So I don't really understand why 
the emphasis on appealing to them more is supposed to gain any sort of ground politically? Well, I think per her example, she pointed to members of her family that have been small business owners. And I didn't say this in the context of the um, episode, but I was reflecting as well on my you know, great aunt and uncle had a convenience store in Virginia. My uncle had, was a mechanic. Um, my mother's a small business owner. I think there are a lot of people who work for themselves and are fall outside of what is typically understood as small business owner and the fall outside of the um, framing that is often exploited by big business in which small business owner in quotation marks is used for the excuse as an excuse to support a bunch of policies that inert to the benefit of large corporations. And I do think that she's right when she assesses that there are many groups, including, I think, black Americans and many Latinos, who, if they do not personally own small businesses, see themselves as perhaps benefiting one day from entrepreneurship because they feel exploited in their main jobs. And obviously, we would like to be working toward people not being in those exploitative employee relationships. But you have two choices. You can convince them that you know worker ownership and i made that argument on the podcast is the way to go and try to demystify capital s socialism lowercase s socialism or you can also understand that they are currently in the moment uh find the idea of entrepreneurship appealing even if many parts of the left leadership don't and don't do things that antagonize the idea of business ownership and even throw a couple of bones to the idea that people should have the ability to start their own business and be free to be creative and extricate themselves from the current system, which, of course, we all would recognize is deeply exploitative. Um, people want to make their own hours. People want to have more flexibility. And their hustle culture is real. And I think this really gets to the fundamental point. You know, is the left interested in preaching to the choir and rejecting everybody who doesn't already think like them? Or should it be conscious of the fact that enormous constituency groups that have been the sticking point in some, in some pretty big victories in recent history think and feel differently than uh, the cultural values that are dominating the left uh, rhetorical space right now? And should we wrestle with that? Well, to your point, though, that... Uh that actual cohort of voters is small. I mean, I, I guess my whole, the the thing where I was just not totally following and a bit confused because she makes two points that one side of her family was kind of uh, part of actual state, like governmental employment on a more like, uh, you know, public healthcare system versus like, uh, what was the other thing that she was in a business where she was getting profit sharing for the actual sales made which actually sounded pretty good, so I wasn't sure, I wasn't picking up on the contrast of going off on her own and how it was, like, demonstrably better. But, like, I don't know, the, the thing that I'm kind of conflicted with is that, and, and maybe I'm not getting something, it's, it's just, to me, this is more kind of, of this idea that the left has to go over this kind of very liberal kind of idea, these people that still kind of believe in this uh, American business interest, whether it be small or big, and that there's a whole lot more people that are just kind of outside of that or more rural-based or have a completely different set of, like, aspirations or values that I think are, are more gettable and make up a more majoritarian contingency anyways, and, and this, this emphasis more on business-related interests, I, I just feel like it's even more insular and more just kind of a 
non-starter would not really get anywhere in actually getting a majoritarian. I'm, I'm rambling. I'm sorry. I'm just no, you're, still. You're not, you're not Nick, but here's, I'm noticing that you said an emphasis on these business interests. I don't think that either she nor I were advocating for an emphasis on these business interests. This is a conversation about acknowledging the extent to which culturally in many, many groups, the idea of entrepreneurship is not anathema, whatever we feel about that as a personal value. And that a certain kind that, that mainstream corporate Dems and Republicans are able to weaponize left movements by arguing that they are not sensitive to those interests. Now, I would argue, and we did on the podcast, that Democrats give only mere lip service to the idea of small businesses, that uh, people like Joe Biden will put a page up on their website that says, this is the small business, uh, small black, black business growing plan for America, build back black, you know, And, and there was a page like that during the primary. And I don't think policy wise, much is going beyond that page. You'll sprinkle a few dollars here or there. They'll promise it's that and the other and nothing actually comes through. So this isn't a conversation about needing to do a lot differently to beat out the bare minimum that corporate Dems are doing to appeal to this constituency group. But it's an acknowledgement that when the left does nothing or even worse, kind of vilifies the person who's like selling purses out of their garage uh, in the same breath as Jeff Bezos or fails to at least draw the distinction between that person and Jeff Bezos and fails to emphasize things like worker ownership while they have conversations about concepts like socialism, it serves to alienate a group that might not otherwise be alienated. What do you think of that? I, I don't know. Um, (laughs) Maybe you should move on to the next caller. Maybe I'm not composed enough to really articulate what I'm getting at. I, I guess the, the the thing that was just kind of a bit frustrating during that conversation, I, I don't know how much, because uh, I understand that you were, of course, involved with the Bernie campaign, but I guess I'm not sure if uh, if you also did, like, the phone banking or canvassing in some capacity when you worked for it. No, not during the 2020 campaign. Because the, the reason why I bring this up is because as much as I wanted to find kind of the conversation personally useful, like, anecdotally, like... Doing phone banking in South Carolina ahead of that primary was like bashing my head against a wall. Like I, I, I didn't talk to a single person that was at all amenable to Bernie. Just like total, uh, just everybody completely suspicious of anything regarding socialism or healthcare. Kind of coming from that same viewpoint as that, like, you know, this social program means something is being taken away from me if it becomes reality so like, that's the isn't, thing that, that I, isn't that a reason to find this conversation useful then if you found having those conversations with people with this mindset well, frustrating this, and difficult to move through but this is kind of what i'm getting at is that i i think that that's specific to people that are still like registered democrats and believe in that and i'm now of i am convinced that anyone that doesn't get it at this point and is still registered democrat is is political dead weight. Nick, I'm glad you called because I think that your view is shared by many and I'll move on to the next, but I also just want to say that, you know, with, with all due respect, I think that that attitude that you have is shared by many on the left, which is that these voters are, are far gone. They're political dead weight and we shouldn't even try. And given that so many of those voters are from 
un- underrepresented communities, including racial communities and class-based communities, uh, working class communities, I would caution you and others from deciding that these communities aren't worth convincing or aren't able to be convinced because we had a couple of co- phone conversations with them. What Teslin is arguing is that in her experience, as someone who comes from those communities, as someone who has been a small business mind- owner and has that mindset, she is someone who felt so strongly about Bernie that she went to work with him in 2016 when everyone was telling her that was career suicide. And that she understands that there is a path toward getting people like that on board if we change our framing and at very least acknowledge the value of their entrepreneurial desires. Just saying, yes, I respect the right that you want to have a small business. Let me make it easier for you by medic- by by providing Medicare for all so you don't have to pay for your employees' health care. As opposed to saying, gosh, this person's talking about small business ownership. It sounds like an op. They must be a libertarian, and therefore they're unwilling to be flopped. And that's why I first asked you why it was relevant to you what her political ideology is. Because I don't think that we should be assessing whether or not someone has something useful to contribute or whether they could be someone who joins our political coalition based on how they identify politically. Well, thanks for letting me talk and, and work out my thoughts anyways. But no yeah, worries. thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. I really appreciate it. And I think that you're not going to be alone here in this conversation. So let's hear what Peter has to say. Hey, Peter, what's on your mind? Unmute yourself when you have a chance. Hey, Brie, can you hear me? I can. What's up, Peter? Awesome. Well, first off, I'm say a huge fan. Thanks for letting me chat. Um, I've had a thought about some of these kind of force the vote kind of adjacent questions over the past few months that I wanted to maybe talk out a little bit and hear your thoughts on, which is which was kind of catalyzed the other day when I was listening to a podcast on the Current Affairs podcast feed with your it was an interview with your colleague uh, Nathan Robinson, and I think his name is Sam Bell, who's a I think he's like a state assembly member, state uh, um, state senator, something like that from Rhode mm-hmm. Island. And Nathan was talking to him about, you know, kind of voting against the establishment or going that stuff. And Sam Bell said something very, that I found very interesting was just that there are certain votes that he's made that, you know, kind of with the grain of the establishment or, or however you kind of want to frame it, because he kind of says he basically didn't have the emotional kind of strength in that moment to kind of keep always fighting, always going, going, going. Mm. And we've seen that with... You know, I guess it was a couple months ago at this point, that whole thing with AOC when she like voted, was going to vote no, but then like switched the to president Dome. for the Iron mm-hmm. Dome. And then she's like crying and all that stuff. And there was a lot of, you know, backlash on like the left Twitter and all that, which, you know, a lot of good points were made. But, you know, as someone who's, you know, is younger and I'm thinking about like what I want to do with my life and all that stuff, I'm thinking, I'm like, man, if I was 30, is that, I think that's old, AOC is 30, 31, something like that. And I was mm-hmm. basically up against the force She's of like 32. the Demo- 32. There you go. Against <laughs> She's a Virgo. The, uh, oh, me too. Um, against the uh, uh, kind of that democratic machine. And I'm not necessarily saying that's an excuse because you don't have to, you know, no one has to be a congressperson or a senator or a president. I get really frustrated with uh, friends and kind of colleagues of mine that talk about like Obama and the drone wars. It's just like, oh, he's just doing the best he can against the establishment. And I don't necessarily buy that but i and then i remember zoran mamdani i think is his name who's spoken mm-hmm. on your podcast a couple mm-hmm. times and earlier this year talking about like kind of personal reflections in albany and confronting power and how he wanted to vote no but then he had to vote yes because he knew that was gonna be the only thing and it, i wonder if it'd be interesting to basically potentially have some like 
state assembly members, so like basically elected kind of socialists or progressives in like more local and state offices. If you could have a conversation with some of them about this kind of thing and like how those those kind of votes play out in like less national arena. Oh, I don't know. What do you think about some of the stuff that I'm saying? Or do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Curious. I've never been in that position. I'd like to sit here and say that I wouldn't, you know, would never. And um, that these people just don't have a backbone and they need to grow up. Um, I'd like to, I'd like to sit here and confidently say that, but as you pointed out, there've been enough people that I respect like Zoran who have indicated that these pressures are very real for me not to be too dismissive of it. Um, but that's also a really, it seems like a systemic problem. I was just talking to producer Ben about this as we recorded, uh, Monday's episode, uh, an hour or so ago before I started recording here and you know what I would do in a hypothetical scenario where I was running for Congress in a district I'm from in New York and I got peppered with a bunch of questions about is does Israel have a right to defend itself and all of the very well-drawn framing that certain interests have come up with to make it very difficult to you know to to give an answer that doesn't upset a lot of people and can potentially damn your chances and I'm I don't think it's impossible but I do think People have to start strategizing. The left has to come up with answers and do comms work before the context of any given race because what ends up happening is individuals are asked to, on the spot, do the work of educating the public on a very polarizing, broad issue in the context of a short-lived, underfunded campaign. And we saw this with Nina Turner, and I've talked about this before as well. You know, there are hard votes and hard moments and feelings that you have to do and say things that are maybe even be out of step with your constituency, but they're the right thing to do. And what would make it easier is if every single solitary progressive with the weight on the world on its shoulders didn't have to do a mass media marketing campaign to explain left ideas because the people who are safe and secure and already in office or national figures, people like, I would argue, Bernie Sanders aren't necessarily doing the work of explaining things like MMT or explaining why that kind of rhetoric around Israel is so unproductive, you know, and could take the weight off of people who are just trying to fight races and win. Um, but I do think it would be useful to have some folks in elected office on and talk about some of those choices. And maybe we'll manage to do so at some point. Sorry, Peter, I just muted you because there was a little bit of um, background noise. But does that answer your question? Um, unmute yourself, Peter. Oh, yeah. There. Yeah, yeah. That was I mean, I was just it's just some thoughts I was thinking about. I wanted to to get your take on it. Um, yeah, no worries. And- yeah. Also, I really want to correct that, although I'm correct that AOC is four years younger than me, that she shares a birth year with Taylor Swift, which is how I remember, 1989. She does. She is not, in fact, a Virgo. She Her birthday is October 13th, which makes her a Libra? September? October? September? No, no. She's a Virgo. September? No, no, no. No, she's a Libra. She's a Libra. She's okay, a Libra. Yeah. All right. I'm glad we got that cleared up, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks for thanks for having me on. I'll let you get get to the next people. Sure yeah, of course. To say. Of course. Next up is David Tillman. What say you, David? Hi, Bree. How you doing today? I'm doing all right. What's on your mind? Um. So I was 
thinking about the episode, the first thing I think I just want to ask is, um, I, I, I noticed that you, you posted a tweet earlier that just uh, poised the premise of um, entrepreneurship versus socialism. And then I, mm-hmm. I commented and I was just wondering um, what you think, um, how do we discuss this in a way that convinces entrepreneurs that socialist ideas actually do benefit their business. I mean, like you mentioned that the, the healthcare thing, if you're not having to provide healthcare, then maybe you can pay a $15 minimum wage or, you know, um, and, and I wanted to bring in the fact that you talked to um, Giannis Ver- Ver- Varoufakis. Well, mm-hmm. That's him. Mm-hmm. He, I watched a debate um, that he did talking about, can we fix capitalism? And he mentions uh, something like a coin that gives uh, employees a piece of ownership and and that being one of the ways that you can actually um, not fix capitalism but morph it into something that is more feasible with more socialist style policies so I'm wondering do you have an idea of how you have that conversation with entrepreneurs who typically do vote Republican or, or, or vote more conservatively because it, it, our system is such that if you vote that way, then yeah, your business tends to benefit. Yeah. Well, so for one, I'm glad you referenced that clip. I posted that new clip because we just posted to YouTube a longer chunk of the episode. So if you're not a subscriber and you haven't heard this clip or the longest clip we posted to YouTube, you can listen to it over there. Maybe it would be useful for me to at least play the clip here. But what I will say is if, if you go over to YouTube and look in the comments, I noticed that somebody very early on wrote, you know, I, you won't believe how many people I flipped to supporting Bernie style policies by pointing this, pointing out that they won't have to, as business owners, carry the cost of providing health care for their employees. And in the episode, Teslin and I discussed myriad other examples of how socialist policies in order to the benefit of small business owners. What we typically see happening is that big business owners understand the value of the trickle down kind of arguments that even people on the left treat as actual factual. And they use small business owners as a shield to justify policies that actually don't help small business owners at all, but help large businesses, uh, corporations a great deal. And so I guess I kind of present this question to you. Like I really hear what um, the earlier caller was saying about finding even dabbling in this area, a little dissonant and concerning. And is someone just trying to convince us to leave our morals and values behind, but the superficial nature with which other people on different parts of the political spectrum engage this point with no interest in actually helping these people when left policies actually would help small business owners is exactly why we should be talking about it in these terms and not basically concede the idea of business or entrepreneurship to conservatives, be they Democratic conservatives or Republican conservatives. I think that that, that Medicare for all point is clutch. Mm-hmm. It is, I, I believe the statistic is that it is the single largest expense for business owners. And as people are considering whether or not they can afford to leave their main jobs to start something else new, healthcare is the number one expense. Number one thing that they consider, like, am I going to sentence my family to not having health coverage because I want to leave my job and try for something new? What if I get sick while my business is starting up? What if my child gets sick while my business is starting up? 
Okay, I hear that and agree. And I <laughs> I will have to go look at the comments of the video. Um, next question that I had, or next thing I wanted to, to talk about was, last time I was here, I um, asked you and Katie a question about messaging and, and how do we um, get the left kind of on the same page and, and talking about the same thing. And uh, how do we get the, the I guess, um, politicians, because you and Tesla touched on this, like, why don't politicians, why aren't politicians afraid of the left voters? Why don't, Mm -hmm. why aren't we seen as a voting block like people who watch Fox News and the MAGA crowd and the people and the the elder generation that that followed Jim Clyburn, um, Congressman Clyburn when he said, oh, go vote for Joe Biden. Like, so I guess I'm I'm going back to that question and asking if you have any other thoughts post your your discussion with with Teslin. Like, is there what else can we be doing to kind of unify the left in any way? And I know it seems like a really big question, but it's like I don't think we have anywhere else to like anyone else to ask those questions to. Yeah, here's 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 the thing, and I really I don't want to make this all about poor Nick because he really I think that he really did voice concerns that a lot of people are sharing. And I'm so glad that he called in and, and said what he did. But, you know, when Teslin and other black commentators point to certain attitudes among leftists that are not helpful, white, white leftists that are not helpful, it is this feeling where the frustration with voters that comes about through its sincere engagement, phone banging and stuff like real efforts to try to flip people that are so appreciated and so needed and so necessary. But through that process, people get very frustrated and say, never mind that there, there is an exasperation that comes about with that particular group that are end up getting spoken about in a way that I rarely hear a group like West Virginians talked about, right? Like no one's sitting here saying in particular that we're like, we need to win West Virginia or anything for electoral reasons. The conversation isn't exactly that way. You know, black voters in key states really can make or break in a way that, you know, a state of folks like West Virginia isn't, but we also see, you know, the racial polarization that's happening. There's a discourse around how white women did this in 2016 and all of that. And yet there is not a conversation about how we just have to stop talking to white women. You know, there, there is not a conversation about, how like these people just cannot be convinced, you know, they cannot be. To- and I think that some of that comes from a, a lack of cultural familiarity mm-hmm. and you know, a willingness when, to want to talk to those people. Yeah, Right. And, and, and the, an investment in them, I will admit to having an investment in black people because I'm black. And I mm-hmm. also have a, an understanding, a belief that they are actually more primed to actually join in the left because of their material conditions. And also because of various political traditions within the black community that have historically made black people on the left flank of American politics, even though that has changed in the last 30 years or so. So I have had plenty of these frustrating conversations because I've had these conversations with my friends and family. And because I can't kind of abandon those relationships and don't want to abandon those relationships, I have had them to their conclusion and I have learned techniques that are effective. When, when I was in the, when, when the campaign was ongoing, I, they sent me to Alabama, um, to the Alabama's democratic party conference or whatever it was called. And in Alabama, the democratic party is, is, is black. It's a black, it's all black. That's the only people in mm-hmm. Alabama. I guess we're Democrats. <laughs> and, the only um, representatives from a campaign, first of all, it was sponsored by Michael Bloomberg, 
LOLs. Uh, and he was a keynote speaker in the middle of this campaign season, LOLs. But additionally, the only other representative from other campaigns, despite it being a crowded field of like 25 or 26 or whatever it was, were me and um, Terry Sewell, who's a representative from the state. And they gave us all time to speak, I guess, to give the impression of fairness, <laughs> even though this was like a Bloomberg event and she's a representative from the state who was there for Biden. So she gives up and says, rah, rah, Biden's great. You know Biden. He knows you. We all know each other. Circle jerk. And then I get up on stage like no one's told me anything about anything. But I basically give my little spiel about all the ways that Bernie can help black people and all that jazz. I get off the stage and the groom, which is older, I'm the youngest person there by probably 15 years and more closer to an average of 20, 30 years. They see me as a kind of... um. A sweet young girl is how they were re- interacting with me. Like I was somebody's granddaughter and they were all very proud of me. And they were like, oh, you're a lawyer, honey. Good for you. Like, you know, they, they liked me is what I'll say. Mm-hmm. Like they were very mm-hmm. sweet and compassionate. They liked me. But some of them had follow-up questions about, you know, well, what you really think Bernie could win? And what about socialism? And isn't that an issue? And I had to work the room. I had to deal with it. These are people who were not hostile. They weren't biased against me. They weren't unconvincible. But they very clearly had never, ever heard a person in their entire lives talk to them about Bernie Sanders or any kind of alternative political agenda. So, because these are the same people that are too caught up in surviving to really do yes. a lot of this homework on their own yes, and kind of need these people to act as surrogates for them, yeah? Yes, but also it's, it's, it's just regular people. It's not people who turn on, you know, who work, who come home, who turn on the TV, watch MSNBC or Fox or CNN and then turn it off and go to sleep. You know, like you're, you're not getting all of this stuff that's on the Internet when you're a 65-year-old who doesn't get on YouTube every day and, you know, stream Jimmy Dore, you know, right. or, or, or the Black Hampton leftist or Bad Faith, Bad Faith podcast. Like, and so it's not, it's not ignorance, you know, but it's like we're, be, we're in different silos. And so I, the first guy who's like, oh, I don't know about socialism. You seem like a nice girl, but I don't know about socialism. I said, well, you know, I understand. Start by acknowledging. Yeah, I understand why that might give you pause. I understand that that's not a word that we talk about often in our political context. But something that helped me appreciate what the stakes were, we're thinking about how many people in our own tradition were self-identified as socialists, people like Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. And what I understand it to mean, and I frame it like that, right? I don't tell him what it means. I offer what I humbly believe, and let tell me if I'm wrong, sir. But my understanding was that it was about prioritizing how our society and community can thrive as opposed to prioritizing business interest or capital, which is what the state, what people, politicians have been forcing for, for a long time. And I think that we can agree there's certain things that as much as we've been very committed to the Democratic Party, myself and my family included for our entire lives, things that just haven't gotten done no matter how many times we vote for them. And me personally, I think it's time to shake it up a little bit and see what happens if we vote for somebody whose own political career has shown a real commitment to advancing those priorities that you and I share. Mm. And you know what? He was like, okay, Biden's going to win, but I appreciate you. <laughs> see, that's, <laughs> you know? that's the part. That part, though. That part. But no, no, he didn't say, I'm going to vote for Biden. He said, Biden is going to win. 
but he's resigned to believing that. It's like, that's the same argument or that's the same response that I get anytime I've had that conversation with somebody that I think I could, that actually starts to agree with me. Like, you're right about that. You're right about this. You're making all these great points. But the, we live, they, they always kind of drop back to, we live in the real world and this is how it's going to happen. No, no, no. We're misunderstanding each other. No, we're misunderstanding okay. each other. There's one kind of person that says there's no point in voting for someone other than Biden. Uh-huh. But that, that's the kind of argument you get in a general election with a third party voter. Uh-huh. But in a primary, it's very different. In okay. a primary, it's it's someone who's living in the state of Alabama who understands rightly. This is like a these are like delegates and stuff. These are like political people in the room, you know, who understands right. very well what the system is. Look, this isn't an event. I'm gonna. Is there something? Are you, is there something clicking in their background, David? Oh, sorry, that's a fidget spinner. I do that just so I can focus. I can stop. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I don't want to have to mute you because we're having a good back and forth. Um, that there is a uh, that, that there's a some people think it's futile because of third party politics. But someone, this person in the room who is a delegate, what he understands is that even though this is events paid for and sponsored by Michael Bloomberg, that the party apparatus has already decided that they're behind. Joe Biden. That's what he's saying to me, actually, that person in the room, that the party has decided that they're getting behind Biden. And so that's the problem there is that Bernie hasn't gotten into the state and formed the kind of relationships that would cut that off at the pass. And me, no matter no matter what, you know, last poet society ass speech I give in that room is going to change that reality. But if we're having a conversation about how to communicate with voters, how to communicate with individuals, and how to have a mass communication strategy with left media and infiltrating mainstream media, I think that it's right that you have to have a certain rhetorical approach ready to go as well. And that's what Teslin and I were talking about. And I think that being I've been in the room with Bernie Mm -hmm. at another a different black event. I think this one was in Cleveland. Um where it was a it was a it was a media it was like a journalism event it was like a black publishers event or something like that and the people who were sponsoring that event were talking about how in 2016 by accident bernie ended up spending more in that media market and black press than anybody else and that had endeared them to bernie these are business people with shrinking small black publications in the state of ohio that are underfunded just like the rest of media and going out of business and because Bernie's ad buy for just coincidentally was bigger than Hillary's in 2016, they all just like Bernie for that reason. Now, I can sit here and say that's stupid and frustrating and they should like Bernie because of who he is. But imagine how but, easy it was to be influential and well-liked in this one little sector just because you threw a little bit of money toward, toward this press that is also speaking to a constituency group that you want to speak to and that you need to win. And it's, and it's those kinds of things as well, Play, playing that little game. And I know the that left hates sense. that. They, they hate that. They're like, oh, I shouldn't have to. Uh, and we shouldn't have to talk about entrepreneurship. And oh, we shouldn't have to. I mean, you can sh- shouldn't have to yourself into another 100 years of not winning anything. But there has to be an ability to divorce what your values are from understanding the way the world is right now. People are struggling. Newspapers are struggling. They appreciate folks who spend money on advertising. Mm. That's not capture that's not corruption you want to advertise they have a business it's a simpatico it is what it is people should be spending more money on black press regardless you know right right 
So if you can get them to get buy-in, then do it. I mean, don't necessarily compromise your values, but find yes. ways that you can get them to get buy-in. Call okay. people, like, God bless Bernie. I, I thought it was hilarious, too, at the New York Times. And he's like, I don't call them on the Bernie. But my God, if we <laughs> can win South Carolina, please call someone on their birthday. Or, or ask, yes, ask a surrogate to call someone on their birthday. Yeah. Killer Mike, Nina Turner, I'll call. the. I'll, I'll put a, put a in, in dictionary, what do you call it? A phone book in front of me. And I will sit here and burn out my cell phone plan calling people on their birthday. I'm calling on behalf of Bernie Sanders just to wish you a happy birthday. <laughs> it's Capricorn season. Where are my Capricorns at? Happy birthday to all of y'all. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff is just such an easy ask. And if, I, if Bernie Sanders has to put a plan to support small business owners up on the website, that involve, that the, the plan can read – Get Medicare for all so small business owners don't have to pay out-of-pocket costs for employees' health insurance. If that's the whole small business owner plan, at least he would have that link on his website. Right. And and have something that you can speak to to get these people to be like, oh, he is thinking about you. And exactly. maybe more bridge, and bridge that gap a bit more. Because you and Tesla made a very good point that a lot of uh, black people do want to be entrepreneurs for the, all the reasons that she mentioned. Right. I mean, it being a way to get out of having to be in that corporatized world that thrives on racism or uses racism to maintain a certain level of control. I know I've dealt with it all, all my career as, as, yeah. a, as a nurse trying to make change, just simple change. That was the first discussion that you and I had when I said I was trying to convince people at work to be more involved yeah. in a, in Oh, you governance. were the traveling nurse. You're the one who's traveling now because well, of Yes, yes. I, I, yeah. I, I'm not traveling at the moment. I took a full-time position, but that's what I was doing when I came here was I was doing travel work. Mm-hmm. And I saw that the hospital had a lot of potential, but it's like they could have more potential if the nurses on the floor were more involved in the decision-making, which is what we call shared governance. Mm-hmm. And it's like I, I had, it was like fighting an uphill battle, just trying to get them to be like, look, you know, if you participate in this, you can make the changes at the hospital that are bothering you. But it, I think it's such a foreign idea to them that they just see it as me pushing my underhanded lefty politics at yeah. work. <laughs> it's yeah. like, that's not it. I'm, I'm trying to help you. Yeah. And that's the thing. It, it shouldn't just fall on you and individuals. It shouldn't just fall on individual candidates. There has to be a 24, uh, 24-7 round the clock, you know, education campaign that's going on. And, you know, in the episode I recorded today, I love this episode. I can't wait for you guys to hear it on Thursday. It's with an MMT um, economist. And we were talking about, you know, the fact that even someone like Bernie, who, again, isn't running for office and who could be on TV every day talking about MMT and how inflation isn't being caused by spending and why we need to spend more and educating the public on how America is not like your personal bank account. Like all of these could be having conversations. These could be conversations that we are having right now so that when Nina Turner runs again or whomever runs in the fall, they don't have to explain the whole thing with their limited airtime and take on all of the negatives. Yeah. They don't have to take on negative backlash of people confused about this issue. Right. Like it should be happening for people who have less at risk at a time when tempers aren't so high in an election. Um, And it shouldn't just fall on you when you say it to your coworker. It should already be familiar to them because they heard someone debated on CNN. Okay. so thank you for doing the Lord's work, though, both professionally (laughs) and rhetorically in the office place. And thank you for calling in again, David. 
thank you for having me. Of course. All right, All Tom, right. you're the next caller. Unmute yourself in the bottom right-hand corner, and let's hear from you. Hello, how are you doing? Sorry, my voice is a little off, but um, I'm an older guy. I'm 53 now. I, I graduated college in the early 90s, and I, um, you know, I tried to go into the corporate world, and then you know, I realized that, that just wasn't for me in mm-hmm. any way. And I, I bought a pickup truck, and you know, I just started you know, doing odd jobs, things like that, and I, I, I finally uh, started detailing cars. Mm-hmm. And so I, I started detailing cars, and I, I, I created my own business. And I, um, and, and I said, goal. I, I, I had a couple employees, had some guys work with me, you know, but I was always working, you know, hands-on myself, always. Um, and I finally, I leased a small place, and then I got an opportunity to uh, build to suit a car wash. And so I built that car wash. And I became, you know, I had to build it myself. I mean, the whole thing was foreign to me. It was an experience that I never had before. And Mm. and I became a lot of, I became surrounded by a lot of, you know, working class people Mm -hmm. in the construction, doing this job. And then I created this business. And, you know, and and for me, I was always a liberal. I mean, or, you know, left it into someone. But I, I was exposed to a lot of different people, a lot of different people who had a lot of different political ideas and a lot of very conservative people, some of them you know, deplorables, I guess you'd call them. And, you know, but I mean, I, at the same time when I was working, I, I was exposed to a lot of other people who were working class people who had to work for me and, and things like Medicare for all, I, I could see how important healthcare was, mm-hmm. you know, and these guys didn't have healthcare and they never would have, you know, working for me, I couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. I, I was, you know, but I always paid a good wage. I tried to pay as much as I could. Mm-hmm. Um, I never made more than them. I always worked with them daily. I probably, you know, sometimes people get down on small business owners, but I mean, at the end of the day, I was the one who had to clean everything up, make sure the bathrooms were clean, you know, everything. Mm-hmm. And I worked 70, 80 hours a week at the, in the beginning. And it was a tough thing. Mm-hmm. But, it, but the thing is, it, it really exposed me to different people is what I'm saying the most. And I, and I realized the plight of people who are really just working class and they, you know, and the white working class and the black working class and the illegal immigrant working class. I had them all, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, you know, I ended up, I mean, one of these guys was a, a guy from Brazil, amazing guy, um, ended up living in my parents' house with, for five years with us just because, I mean, he needed the money. He couldn't, you know, he was just, and he, my parents were older. He, took, he was very good with them. They loved him. He loved them. You know, mm-hmm. he was deported in 2006. Mm-hmm picked up you know and you know so i learned a lot through this but i'm just saying that a lot of this thing like this outreach like black or white you know or um the left there's so many white people that i know working class whites my age 50 years old and you know they're trumpers or they're they're mostly trumpers populists but i mean they were very interested in bernie in 2016 Mm -hmm. i remember that they were very interested in voting for him but, you know, at the same time, oh, he's a socialist. There's kind of a stigma, you know, with all that. But I think that they, they, I know they want Medicare for all. Mm. I know they want, you know, they would. <laughs> I know they see corporations as corrupt. I know mm. they see the American economy and, and the, everything just completely organized around the corporate power. And, and, the, and the corporations always winning. And they see that. And I think that to me that the white working class man is turned off by identity politics. Mm-hmm. I mean, completely. And, you know, but I think we're missing a lot of people who would come over to the left or come over to a more 
progressive ideas about, especially about healthcare and about, you know, corporations and about, you know, maybe having things like paid leave, things like that. These people want that. And I think that, you know, to me, the left is, it really kind of just turned them all off, you know, and I, that's, you know, yeah. and I was always left and I've become more right lately. I've become more right this year. Mm. I think coronavirus did that to me. Mm. The response, um, I think I don't like the censorship. I don't yeah. like the idea. I think you're not alone in that. Things can't be talked about. Also, I don't like the idea that individual liberties should be given up for the collective. I think that that doesn't make sense. Strong individual liberties are good for the collective. You know, sometimes I hear this either or. Well, you, gotta, you know, I don't, I don't think it's an either or thing. And I mean, I just think that like a new party. I mean, on New Year's, we had a, I had a discussion with my family. And someone was like, oh, well, who do you want to be president? And let me tell you, the people, my, my family were pretty involved in politics. And the consensus was either you or Glenn Greenwald should be president or both. All right? So. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I vote for Glenn. Seriously, I believe. <laughs> and you know what? Also, we get these leftist figures who we say, oh, you know, who's going to take up the mantle for the left and be the leader? And it's everyone's looking at each other like, oh, well, I, mean, I don't see any politicians. And then we look yeah. at the people who are like you. OK, you have a voice, you have an audience, you're intelligent and you could win. And we need you. And we do. I mean, I, I say it every day. Every time I see something, Brianna Joy Gay, I say this woman should be president. And you, I, I, I mean, I'm sorry. I, I don't want to. No, that's you. no, that's very. Sweet. I mean, it's very kind of you to say. And but you're thoughtful, and like I don't see any thoughtful politicians. Well, t- and I feel like you have integrity, and I don't see any politicians with integrity. None. Yeah, I. I mean, I. I'm. I'm obviously. I'm very flattered and humbled by this. The idea that anybody would think that you know. Me, you know, I feel still very new to all of this and very ignorant. I'm learning and I'm, you know, trying along with all of you to make sense of all of this. So I'm, I'm appreciative that you have that vote of confidence, most certainly. And I'm not going to sit here and say that I, you know, didn't moot <laughs> with my partner the idea of making a run for uh, New York's 13th district <laughs> um, over New Year's uh, after a couple of glasses of champagne. Well, that's where you, <laughs> where you but, should but, start, but, I believe. Though, you know what stopped me? that makes me not want to do it at all is that after that conversation, I was, you know, scrolling, scrolling the timeline on the, on the, in the bathroom as one does. <laughs> and I was looking for an old tweet and I did a search on Twitter and a different tweet came up from like 2018 where I was joking with someone about whether or not the American flag was especially aesthetic in the grand scheme of flags. And I was like, well, I love the color scheme. I love some red, white, and blue. I'm not sure about the asymmetry of the flag. And I have this vision of me running for office one day and somebody saying, Brianna Gray hates America because she doesn't think the American flag is attractive. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I think that somebody like Trump, I think Trump appealed to people because he didn't, he was like, you know, I'm an awful human being. Look at me. And, and, but you know, we're all, I have these things in our closet and he didn't play that kind of game. And, I think a, a, a populist is going to win if they, if we can find one, one that'll come up 
it'll help this country. I mean, it has to be, I think. I mean, and, I, and the Democrats have lost it. I mean, I, I'm afraid it's going to come from the Republican Party or the right or somewhere else. Well, I'm, I'm hopeful. I know that people feel the way that they feel about Andrew Yang, and I completely appreciate those criticisms. But I'm, I keep thinking about the forward party, and hopefully next week, if we get the scheduling in line, we'll have the third party episode we've been talking about where we have someone from forward, someone from MPP and someone from the green party all to discuss what the options are. You know, I don't know if you read that political article from a few days ago, but it interviewed folks about the prospect of a progressive challenge to either Biden or whomever they, you know, put up as the replacement Biden, whether it's Harris or whether Pete or Amy make a run. Um, and they interviewed folks on the left, including Marianne Williamson, who seems very confident that there is going to be, or based on her quote in the article, seemed confident that there was going to be some left challenger. And whether that left challenger is someone like a squad member, whether it's someone like an AOC or it's someone like a Marianne or someone like an Andrew Yang, or if we have a whole fleet of progressive challengers, which I think would be really cool. Um, it seems like there is definitely an appetite in part because of how uninspiring Biden and these kind of like uh, Amy types are for something new. And so I'm hopeful that I think you're right. If they don't do that, then we're going to end up in a place where it's a right winger who captures that populist energy and it's going to be extremely dangerous. But this could be a moment, a real moment for a third party rise in this country. I sincerely believe that's true. I know a lot of people think talking about that is dumb, dumb, but I think those people are ops. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It has, I think it has to be surrounded. I mean, this Medicare for all has to be the the the, the main focus of it. Because, I mean, especially the pandemic has exposed what we are. You know, we can't have early treatments. We can't have people getting monoclonals. We have to ration them by race, I guess, if it, it, because we don't have a robust public yeah. health care system. You know, it, the, 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 the shot in the $35 billion that Pfizer makes is great for, you know, a for-profit medical right. industrial complex. It's right. not well, one of the, do anything. One of the things I really love about Thursday's episode uh, is that The Economist explains that the real drivers, there's like four four industries that are actually driving inflation and on top of the supply chain issues. It's not spending, but it's 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 everything that the Bernie kind of agenda was meant to address, right? It's healthcare, how do you bring down healthcare inflation, Medicare for all. It's education, how do you bring down education inflation, free public colleges and university and canceling student debt. It's um, uh, energy and transportation. How do you address the inflation there? Green New Deal. And it's housing. How do you address the inflation in housing? It's a, a universal housing guarantee and, and all of the uh, funding for building housing stock that was in his plan. And as the, the, this economist is explaining to me all of these things, I'm just hearing the entire Bernie agenda, like in the back of my head. And, and I said to him, like, what you're telling me is that to not have the inflationary effect of all these spending, you really do have to have this systemic push. You have to, you have to build all of the things that prevent us from having the shifts in markets and having to import, et cetera, to have these downstream inflationary effects. He's like, yes, you got to do it all at once. You're not going to solve one thing without the other. And what they do by breaking it up in the way that they've done and bastardizing Build Back Better and peeling off pieces until it's nothing is they set it up so they will put money into one thing. And of course, it's going to fail. Of course, they're going to have some inflation because they did it piecemeal. It's designed to fail. And so then they can say, this is why we don't spend. 
it's set up to fail. And, and they're saying, oh, like I saw Matthews or Chris, oh, we're moving too far to the left. We've never moved right. far to the left. If it, like there were never even a public option. Right. I mean, imagine a public act. The first guy who gives us a public option will be right, elected. It'll be FDR. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, it's just even that, you know, or even Medicare for all. They won't, you know. Plus, the neoliberal capitalists, they see that as a slippery slope. They can't give you that. They can't, if they give you health care, what are they going to give us next? That's the way they look. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Tom, and I really appreciate you calling in. I, I love to hear from you, and I love to hear from you as a small business owner, as someone who's gone through that process and experienced the, those push and pulls. Like, I understand left listeners who hear people start to talk about how hard it is to pay wages and how to keep a business afloat and sacrifices that are made and think, well, screw you. Like you shouldn't, you shouldn't be in business if you can't pay your wages and all of this kind of stuff. But, you know, I think there's room for a little bit of humanism in the middle of this to say, how can we as a society support people to be able to do small business ethically and fairly? And that supports small business owners and their employees and doesn't make class enemies out of people who are not really that disparate <laughs> when there's, when there's Bezos who's exactly. right there. Those things you mentioned. And those yeah. things you mentioned, like yeah. Medicare for all, energy, all those things, that'll make yeah. small business yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for that, Tom. I'm going to get onto the queue, but I really appreciate you calling in. All right. Next caller is Grace. Grace, you're back to the front. Don't hang up. Just unmute yourself. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Sorry. Her birth year. How to use Apple. Oh, Grace, you're, Apple. you're going in and out. You're cutting in and out a little bit for me. Are you there? I'm there. I can hear you. Okay. Hey, sorry about that. I'm just learning this platform. Um, but yeah, I, I really appreciate your work and the conversations you've sparked, um, in my life and the voices that you've introduced me to like Tesla and Figaro. Um, and just as I've been listening to your show, I just, and just a question I'm grappling with, um, as a human is, um, you know, what degree electoral politics really has in being able to change, uh, you know, deal with the problems that we're facing um, today. And especially that clip you played from the episode about withholding money from progressive candidates who are unwilling or unable to um, stand up to the power structures in place. Um, And I was just curious about your thoughts about other tactics, especially as, you know, we just had the debt strike episode as well Mm -hmm. um, for, you know, pulling money out of all of the banks, for example, and putting our money in credit unions or implementing boycotts on a mass scale. Um, because even locally where I live, you know, our electoral politics seem to be able to move nowhere in a, um, I live in what people consider to be a very progressive city. Um, so first I'm writing down in my book, as you're talking, we need to do an episode on credit unions, um, because I don't <laughs> feel informed enough to answer that question, but I think it's a really good one. Um, With respect to how much electoral politics can do, I will say two things. One, that I really am feeling people's skepticism about it, and I'm right there with you. Um, I don't think that the scarcity of progressives elected is a reason to not hold them accountable. If anything, it's a reason to hold them even more accountable because what's the point of them unless they they have to be fiercer because of their small number than if there were 150 of them. Um, and I don't think that saying you're going to withhold money is the same thing as damning them to failure or to losing their seats. What it should do is provoke them to do the right thing so that they can 
turn the faucet back on, the money faucet back on. It's the same argument that was made when you're talking about withholding the vote from Biden in 2020 or whomever. They they say, well, if you withhold your vote, he'll lose. It's like, no, no, no. You withhold your vote with conditions, the condition being he actually do what American people want him to do. And then if he does, if he makes promises and commitments, then we vote for him, right? Like if he loses, it's only because he has chosen to lose rather than basically do what majorities of Democratic voters and majorities of Americans across the aisle actually want him to do. So my feeling also about electoral politics is that even losers have an influence. And we saw that with Bernie Sanders. And that's not to say that you should run just symbolic campaigns. But I do think these are opportunities to do mass education in a way that because of the way the media structure rarely happens otherwise. So if you get that CNN town hall, that's an opportunity for you to explain inflation to America in a way they're not going to ever get on MSNBC or CNN. It's an, an opportunity for you to have a moment like Bernie had with that healthcare Fox news town hall, where you got a room full of conservatives to raise their hand and say that they would be happy to go on an employer based health insurance, you know? And I don't think that some of the left can be, I think rightly skeptical of electoralism, but also insufficiently appreciative of what can be gained from a communication standpoint from still running candidates, even if you have deep skepticism of our system being changed from the inside. But both of those, I'm, I'm deeply skeptical and also think that there's value to people running races because of a comms reasons. Yeah. And I definitely, um, I'm thinking about that, you know, here locally and what that looks like, you know, but it's hard when you live or when you're in a situation where people continue to like profess uh, progressive values and then, you know, act the same as um, people on the right, you know. Um, So I think that that becomes um, a challenge. But I agree with you about the hope for a third party. And I think that um, even for my Republican relatives who were unable to, you know, say vote for Trump. Um, there's a lot of appetite on that side of the aisle as well for another option. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I, I find it to be very optimistic that you and Tom are talking in those terms and explaining that there's so many people who still have that appetite. I know people are really demoralized right now. And given my own little silo, literally in my studio apartment alone, (laughs) but also my political (laughs) silo and living in DC and the fact that, you know, because my family is, you know, black, they're not people who are really openly conservative in that way at all. Um, I really appreciate hearing stories from those who do have more conservatives in their lives and to hear that there's opportunity there because the way people talk, they act like even people on the left will act like people are quote unquote deplorables in so far as that they are essentially unable to flip. They are kind of like um, physiognom- physiognomically like unable to think any other way because they're neoliberal or because they're conservative or whatever it is. And it's nice to know that people still feel like the energy that Bernie captured in 2016 exists. Yeah. And I think we can especially see that in the labor movement that's happening right now. That's mm. where I'm holding like my biggest hope out. Um, there was just a Bojangles just went on strike in this little tiny rural town called Burnsville in North Carolina. Mm. And when I saw that happen, I thought, you know, I mean, it's just unbelievable to me. Um, when I first moved to the South, the, just saying the word union was like, you know, um, damning God or something. Um, (laughs) and so, and so it's been really heartening to see that. And I feel like, you know, when we get back to the heart of the issues, there's a lot of room, um, that maybe the sides aren't what we think they are, but yeah, 
Thank you for that. And one one last point that's a little unrelated, but if anyone who's listening does video editing and stuff like that, I've noticed a trend on the left where if you bring up unions, the the, the kind of labor experts on the left will be very quick to say that all of these strike events that have been happening off, uh, across, across the country, yeah, there's more than usual, but this isn't some big wave. Don't exaggerate it. Don't, you know, they, they, they want to, you know, kind of, they're very measured with their description of what's happening. And they, I think they, they don't want people to get the wrong idea and they want to be historically accurate. And I understand that from a kind of professionalized perspective, but from a comms perspective, I really wish somebody would do a video that's like strikes are on the rise. There's a simmering resentment across America and it's manifesting as, you know, labor outrage. What's next? Is it going to be your workplace funnel you to some organization that's going to help you unionize? Like, I don't know why we wouldn't take advantage of whatever little blip in the right direction is happening to help people feel like they're part of a bigger movement. Because that's what's exciting. That's what people like. That's what I would like to see rolled into a student debt strike and all of these other kinds of movements. People producing videos that show a trend that people would want to be part of because you know if it were the right you would see those kinds of ads running on the mainstream news. We, we had a war. We've had a war on Christmas for like decades, <laughs> you know, cause one guy got mad at a coffee cup in a Starbucks. Well, my strategy is to kind of try to um, like, I went to a Starbucks the other day. I'm like, you know, I heard those, those, you know, Starbucks workers are unionizing. I'll be out here and bring you guys snacks. If you <laughs> right. Yes. Decide to get out here. Um, but yeah, I definitely feel like there is so much room to bring that to light and that they're specifically hiding. Um, I mean, I was I was telling my dad, who does conservative commentary on a YouTube channel mm. um, about, you know, about the labor movements that are going on. And he seems like blissfully unaware of them. Mm. Um, and, mm. you know, in some ways that that shares, you know, conservative values as well. Um, um, is that why your audio quality is so good? You're sitting at his setup? No, no, I actually I have I have a podcast as well, but I'm just on my phone. Um, but um, but yeah, I really um, I really think that there's a lot of movement to be had there and that we need to be leveraging just outside of voting that we need to be leveraging our economic power, both in the form of labor and how we vote with our dollars. So, yeah. Um, a- amen. Do you want to plug your podcast? Um. I guess it's, I'm not sure based on the other people that are in the queue, but it's called come Queens podcast. Um, <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> um, and I'm just kind of trying to learn all the things that no one ever taught me uh, about my body and um, other issues related to living <laughs> as a woman or a person with a uterus. I love um, that Grace. This is a sex positive space. So <laughs> you guys heard it here. Come Queens podcast. I actually think a lot of, um, Members of this particular sausage fest will be very excited to go listen to that. <laughs> well, don't get too excited. <laughs> it's not as sexy as it sounds, okay? <laughs> don't get too excited. <laughs> Thank you Thank for you that, so Grace. Much. Have a great day. You too. All right. Uh, day, how are you doing, Day? Hey, Bree. I am doing very well. How about yourself? I am doing fabulously. What's in your mind? I'm not going to lie, Brie, like, I was like, okay, I know what I want to talk about after I listened to the episode, and then you guys started chatting about it, and now my brain is in, like, a thousand different places, but I'm going to try to just keep it really short and sweet, because I was, like, started jotting all these notes, because Nick kicked us off really well, mm-hmm. um, uh, but, um, so let me see, so first and foremost, because I, I do want to say, echoing some of her sentiments at the end of the episode, you can't say that these policies are existential, 
if you aren't willing to do the things necessary to ensure they actually happen. And I do agree with you that sometimes, whether it's Bernie and his refusal to play the, you know, the kiss the baby game, or if mm-hmm. it's whoever it is, that sometimes we we stifle ourselves in the process in the pursuit of these policies. Now, I'm, I'm not saying, of course, do things that are, you know, immoral, et cetera, et cetera. But I do feel sometimes we take such a high ground that we're like, if we don't get elected, nothing happens. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to preface it with that because I remember reading the book. Um, where, you know, I can't remember the name of the book, but Biden's operatives were saying like, you know, they would say they would vote for Trump if Bernie was the nominee. And I just kept thinking, you spent four men, four years calling this man Hitler. If that's really the case, there'd be no way that you'd vote for anybody other than Trump. So it just kind of exposes that I think sometimes there is a distance between what people purport to believe in and what mm-hmm. they're actually willing to do for said things that they believe in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when it comes to the small business conversation because it is something that i encounter a lot in terms of the conversations i try to have with people they automatically assume when we say tax the rich they're talking about small businesses or we Mm -hmm. say corporate greed we're talking about small businesses and it's hard to make that distinction with people when the national conversation is so hyper focused so i definitely agree that we need more of a yes and approach to discussing both the collective contract we have as americans and the individualistic liberties that can be birthed as a result of those. Um, Because it feels like her critique is including people who do want to kind of manifest their own destiny through entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's like, how can we show them that these social programs are a benefit to them in the pursuit of said dreams? Um, Yeah. And I hate to go back to, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I just wanna say, there's just two, there's two levels of, persuasiveness that could go on here, right? There's the, mm-hmm. I'm going to convince you of my Star Trek utopia and that we should not have any, you know, like we, we're going to basically have automation that gets rid of all the dirty jobs. And we're going to fly through the stars yes. and it's all about going to be about exploration and stuff. So don't worry about entrepreneurship. That's, that's going the way of the dinosaur anyway. Right. Yes. And, and <laughs> buy into my social agenda or, but that's kind of a tall order, especially yes, yes, if, at, at knocking at somebody's <laughs> door on a phone call. So then you have to go to the second level like that. Someone, someone needs to be making that big argument a hundred percent of the time somewhere, but in the context of a campaign, you got to make the other argument, which is that this is just going to help you right now. <laughs> you are not yeah. Jeff Bezos. So I'm very confident this is going to help you right now in these small ways. I'm not like trying to convince you to tear down the whole system and that capitalism is evil in the course of this door knocking visit. All I needed to convince you is that within capitalism, these little social democracy programs that we're running on are going to make your life better. And those are not mutually exclusive arguments and, and promoting the second one doesn't mean you don't believe in the first or it doesn't undermine your ability to make the first outside of the context of the door knock. Totally agree with you. And I think like it goes, I hate to always go back to like framing or messaging, but it goes back to that concept of freedom for me. Mm-hmm. Because when she was breaking down that not having financial independence could lead her down a path of selecting choices that were counter to her, like her moral compass, that really resonated with me. And it kind of, it exposed an opportunity to frame some of our agenda with like a lens through stuff like UBI, for example. Mm-hmm. I'm like, is UBI beneficial? Because it would allow people the freedom to invest in themselves and be creative entrepreneurs or creatives or does that and because you know all this is all the data says when people are actualizing their actual potential it benefits society as a whole and i'm just like but no one's talking about those programs well very few i should say are talking about them in a way that really it highlights that aspect of it like everyone just think oh they're going to be lazy and buy drugs and it's like no 
if you get a thousand dollars, is that the first thing you're going to do? Or would this give you the opportunity to be like, you know what, I can take a break from my job like they do in Scandinavian countries mm-hmm. where you're guaranteed up to a certain amount of money. But I think doing that and then something else she mentioned when she talked about the places in Texas that have the healthcare, not just showing it, but then highlighting where it's happening. Because you talk mm-hmm. about worker co-ops a lot. And I know Dr. Richard Wolf frequently talks about, and I forget in the place, the name of it in, in Italy, mm-hmm. he often points to that. And I think is for Americans, we're so under-informed intentionally about programs that actually exist in the guys the Star Trek that try to pretend that it is. It's like drawing the conclusion laying it out and then showing this is how it works. And this is how, because Americans love for us to do things better, we can talk about, and this is how we can improve on said system and make it even better. Mm-hmm. Like Medicare for all technically is better than a, like mm-hmm. the Canadian system. They don't have certain things that we have in that program. And I think we could mm-hmm. celebrate it as, see when America's number one in blank, why the world mm-hmm. would want to match us. Because you know, just like other pundits know, we're falling behind on so many categories mm-hmm. that eventually we're going to become a laughing stock. And that's not what anybody wants. Yeah, I think it's important not only because you're right, America, kind of the American exceptionalism wants us to be the best to say, you know, we're doing better than the Canadian, but also because it cuts off some criticisms at the past, uh, at the past, because folks will say, well, here's this flaw in the Canadian system. And it's nice to be able to say, mm-hmm. yeah, totes, ours is going to be better than that. And we saw that with the Medicare for all discourse. Some people would say, well, here's this problem with Medicare and reimbursement rates aren't high enough. And the answer is, well, yeah, no, Bernie's plan isn't literally just Medicare. It's improvement on Medicare. There's hearing, dental and vision, all these other things. Um, but because that doesn't typically come up until after somebody makes the obje- makes the objection, it doesn't have the same force as if you a priori were like, no, we're doing this, but better. Um, and it sounds a little bit less like an excuse than like you're playing catch up. So I think those are two very good rhetorical reasons to take that approach. I, I, I'm with you a hundred percent. You know, what's funny with these, these messaging conversations. I was just talking to Ben about this producer, Ben, mm-hmm. we were after the episode going back and forth and we were playing this game about, you know, pretending I was running for Congress and he was, he was playing the neoliberal journalist asking me about the iron dome and stuff. And I was giving answers (laughs) and we ended up kind of workshopping answers on the fly. We were playing this game for about seven minutes. And I said, you know what, Ben, this is a blast. Also, this should be somebody's job to be paid to do this because it takes a long time, you know, to, to work out one answer to one good solid question. You know, do you believe in Israel's right to exist? This is a question that every progressive is going to get everyone who's ever advocated for Palestinian rights is going to get why is it that there is not some talking point of the perfect answer that has not only been vetted mooted written out in perfect language but also tested in a variety of forms with surface with with working groups so that the next time Ilhan Omar or Shida Tlaib or Nina Turner gets this question they ace it why is there not a think tank? Why is nobody being paid for the service of really working through all of those issues? The way that neoliberals not only have people helping them answer questions, but are designing media narratives that get disseminated to the mainstream and spoken across the globe, across the country. You know, it's, it's really frustrating to feel like, you know, we're doing more comms work on the fly on a podcast than is happening in real life anywhere. And it's not anybody's fault. You know, it's not, I mean, there's, there's a funding issue. There's reasons why it's not happening. It's not just people being stupid and lazy, you know, yeah. 
but it is it is frustrating. There is this question, you know, if we're not going to give money to X, Y, and Z progressive candidate, should we also be advocating for folks to give money to things like the People's Policy Project, a progressive comm shop where there's a progressive think tank and progressive media outlets and stuff like that? Because I'm like, Ben, we just did more work in 10 minutes that could benefit the left <laughs> than anyone's doing. And we did it for fun. And yeah. we didn't write it down, and this is now just going into the ether. But like, <laughs> somebody needs to be doing this. Sorry, that was a long aside, and I should get through this cue. But thank you for calling in as always, Day. I really appreciate it. Oh, likewise, and that was actually a great point. So if ever you want to just play and do something like that, I would happily volunteer my time. That's <laughs> I so mean, that could be a whole podcast. We, we're, no, you know? actually, <laughs> that would be that would be an incredible podcast, actually. Jot that down. Yeah, in the we, book, just, as you said. we just moot, <laughs> moot, moot, bad faith. You know, bad faith moot court. We moot bad, bad faith talking points. <laughs> yes, I love it. <laughs> thank you. All right. Well, thank you, Day. I appreciate you. Always. All right. Next caller is Alex. Alex, unmute yourself when you get a sec. Hey, Bree. Uh, I've been subscribed to Bad Faith for about a year now, but this is my first time calling in on here. Well, welcome. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for all your work. Um, I'm a little bit nervous, so I wrote down my question, but I think it touches on points from a lot of recent episodes. Um, mm-hmm. It's based on a question you asked Zizek a few weeks ago on whether or not or to what extent the left should be talking generally about government overreach during COVID that negatively affects workers. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to open that conversation up given some new developments. Mm. Uh, so he gave that analogy, I'm sure you remember, whether or not one would use being given the Heimlich by an abusive spouse as an mm. example of their spouse's abuse. Mm-hmm. And you responded, in my opinion, very thoughtfully, something like, well, some people don't view themselves as choking. Mm-hmm. He agreed, but ultimately didn't seem to budge from it's not the main thing the left should focus on now. And to that, I would echo something you voiced in some recent Bad Faith episodes. Well, it's not a zero-sum game. We don't have to stop focusing on other issues in order to have a coherent and attractive message to people about the government's response to COVID. For example, don't you think there's potential to harness people's frustration toward the COVID response and effectively channel it towards something like a student debt strike or to funnel it into a more inclusive list of demands with the threat of not voting or donating to Democrats until they're met? Uh, The recent development, which brings new light to the question, is the flight attendant union's Mm. recent blast of the CDC's shortening of quarantine time. Mm-hmm. So I get the impression that it's had rippling effects through communities, maybe particularly educated ones, uh, likely many of those with student debt, marking a major point where lots of people who weren't previously saying this are now saying, oh, hey, the COVID's, the CDC's response is influenced by money and business rather than mm-hmm. just public health. So with forced, avoid, forced Vote, you pointed out that we don't always or often we don't get to choose where the energy on the ground is, what the movement is. Mm-hmm. And I think this is an instance where we can see what the movement is. Uh, We know that COVID was a huge, if not the deciding factor in 2020, and there's an opportunity to harness that energy to make demands about it and other related issues at the same time. So I don't know exactly what the most effective message would be, but maybe something like Joe Biden wants you to go back to work while sick and can spread the virus in parts that you can pay back student debt, money which we know the government doesn't even need. Biden Mm -hmm. was elected on the promise that there would be an effective response to COVID among many other promises which would have not been met. We need all of those plus some demands which he didn't promise but are absolutely necessary, such as Medicare for all, or else we'll stop donating and vote you out, all of you. I know it's clunky, but I'm wondering what you think about that strategy and why you think the left hasn't embraced criticizing the COVID response, effectively ceding that ground to the right's criticisms, allowing them to be the only ones that exist. 
<laughs> I, I love that. I love that, Alex. I love that thread. Oh, you're you're on team. You're on team uh, Bad Faith Moot Court Workshop Podcast. We're not going to workshop the name of that podcast. I, I, I'm a hundred percent with you. I'm a hundred. Why hasn't the left? Um, why has the left ceded the the ground? With respect to the COVID response, well, look, for one, I do think the fact that the flight attendants, you know, that Sarah Nelson, people are are talking about it doesn't mean that we've con- completely ceded that ground. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are folks on the left who have been skeptical of the COVID response throughout, whether it's people talking about lab leak theory, which was pretty roundly covered on the left when it first came out, um, whether it's people like Jimmy Dore who, you know, People feel like have gone too far into COVID denialism, but who would object sure. to that and deny that and say that I've taken the shot and I'd encourage people to take the shot and all this kind sure. of stuff. But I do think that the risk of being called an anti-vaxxer and losing credibility is significant. And people on the left, I think, have a very unique um, uh, fear of losing credibility because we're already seen as like crazy kooks living in our parents' basement. I think more so than corporatists of either stripe, leftists are more concerned about being painted as woo-woo nutso. And as a result, have been very timid about wading into COVID waters, despite the fact that we should have always been owning the critique of pharmaceutical excess and ineptitude. And I think mm-hmm. I, what podcast was I? Ta- oh, we did the, the Dr. Oz episode and I was a little surprised that there wasn't more buy-in from, you know, Dr. Um, Abdullah Sayyid about why there is legitimate skepticism about COVID. This was before the latest CDC recommendations came out. But, you know, Dr. El Sayyid was, he, he is a leftist. He ran on a Bernie platform for governor of Michigan you know, he is not unaware of all of these things, but even he seemed to be to stop short of really, truly embracing why people would be frustrated with a whole year of being told masks, but like no masks and then masks and the reaction to any kind of treatment that people thought might be useful during the Trump administration became, oh, he just wants to inject you with bleach, even if there were some medical indications that X, Y, and Z would work or that they were real medicines, even if used for other applications, you know, the horse dormer, all of the stuff. I, I think that it's really about fear. It's, it's, a, it's the same fear. Leftists don't want to seem like losers and leftists don't want to seem um, fringe. Can I already you? are. Yeah, go ahead. It, it reminds me a little bit the fear that you're pointing out reminds me maybe a little bit of the frustrations that a lot of people on the left had with Bernie Sanders in 2020. Uh, the fear of, uh, you know, not wanting to say anything other than Joe Biden is my friend. Joe Biden is not corrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe there's a parallel to that just in that, you know, if, if he had pushed further, some, some say that that would be, you know, a winning strategy. More people would have been attracted to that. Um, and that it was just that fear that that kept that from happening. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I could talk to a million therapists about what I what, <laughs> what was going through, yeah. you know, what motivated Bernie's approach. And I and I'm also reluctant to um, do too much backseat driving or Monday morning quarterbacking, given that you know who knows what was in the room and who knows what was being said and who knows what was being threatened. Um, sure. 
you know, it is what it is, but it seems obvious to everybody involved and who's watching. And again, this comes up on the episode that will be out on Thursday. Um, that it, what's undeniable is that there were real opportunities and that there was an appetite for a different kind of rhetoric. And that moment where um, Zephyr Teachout wrote that article about Biden being corrupt and Bernie and the campaign distanced themselves from that article, even though it was an article that was vetted by the comms department, um, was a real telling moment about how far Bernie was and was wasn't willing to go. Mm. And I don't know why, but we have to figure out how to get candidates who are willing to go there because I don't see it any other way because we can sit here messaging all day and night, but the main issue is that people are already on board. They're just not hearing that there is a, an outlet for their feelings, for their political feelings. Yeah. That, political preferences. Yeah. Like what Tom said earlier that, that he feels like he's been pulled to the right because of COVID. I, I don't know exactly what it is about COVID that, that has pulled him that way, but you know, I, I guess that's what I'm getting at at the end there um, with, with seeding some of that ground. Um, anyway, thank you so much for letting me get my full question out. I appreciate it. No, thank you, Alex. It was a great question and you should uh, use the clipping tool in this app and clip it so we can push it to social media. And that's just a reminder to everybody that one of the great things about this Colin app is that you can, clip parts of an episode they will appear on your timeline on this app so your friends who join the app can like see what you've been up to and what you've been saying and also they can be pushed to social to instagram to twitter and all of that stuff so people can hear the kind of conversations and excellent questions you're asking and then come and join in next time so thank you again for that alex thanks all right next up is thomas what say you thomas uh unmute yourself by pressing oh, okay. the, there you go. Got it. Sorry about that. Yeah, no worries. What's on your mind? I had a question about, or well, I want to discuss the topic of worker co-ops, mm-hmm. um, which I know is very popular with Richard Wolf and Yanis Varoufakis, sort of like the thing they're pushing. So I guess my question is, would, for instance, a 100% worker co-op economy constitute socialism uh, or would it just be a sort of reconstitution of capitalism? Um, Would it move us closer to socialism? And if so, how would you go about achieving it? Why would the capitalists vote to give away to like, why would they vote to reconstitute capitalism in that way? Well, I think this is a question that would be a great question for Richard Wolf or Yanis Varoufakis. <laughs> I don't know that I can weigh in in any way that's particularly informed. I think it certainly would move us closer. Um, but your last but question why is about that? Well, I think the part of the idea of having worker co-ops would be that the decision making would be diffuse to benefit the work, the individual workers as opposed to benefiting um, owners or shareholders. So you would have decision-making being done at some level that no longer say supports political efforts like um, deindustrialization, moving jobs overseas that contributed to the kind of decline that we saw during the eighties and nineties. And there will be political effects in terms of lobbying and how our elected officials are mobilized if all of the corporations that are currently lobbying to benefit themselves and shareholders suddenly have interests that align more closely with workers and that there might be long, longer arm downstream effects across our political landscape because 
at root, the extremely affluent business interests that are driving a lot of the corruption in our politics just simply wouldn't exist anymore. I mean, that's just a, a, a thought as to why it would get us closer there because it would have political effects. Sure. Um, yeah, I, potentially. I mean, I'm somewhat skeptical even of the idea that outside of like government enforcement that everything would have to be a worker co-op. That's sort of a... Well, that wasn't the question. I mean, it, it, right, is, right. Is your, your, your question was, if this were the case, what would this make a difference? Not, do I believe that this is what we should do? It sounds sure. like you have feelings about whether or not we should be aiming for 100% worker co-ops, which I don't, I'm not really prepared to weigh in on because like, the really funda- fundamental question we're having right now is we have no worker co-ops basically and how do we get some? So I don't know that doing like an absurdist extremist version of the argument is especially useful at this juncture. Sure. And I'm curious why that's on your mind. Well, I guess, so my understanding was that in that the, the topic of the previous episode, which was the entrepreneurship question Mm -hmm. that one of the sort of solutions to this uh, issue that was presented was, well, about worker co-ops as a sort of, way to incorporate entrepreneurship into the left. Mm-hmm. Is that right? I hope I'm yeah. Not well, it's about framing. It's just, it's, it's saying that if there are these people who value the idea of entrepreneurship and who are therefore made timid by the notion of socialism, because they think that socialism means state uh-huh. ownership and that individuals aren't allowed to start their own businesses or make any kind of individual profit. That by clarifying that when you think of socialism, you should be thinking of anything of worker ownership, which is a kind of, entrepreneurship if you want to think about it this way and a way for owners to exercise their own values and interests in the workplace the same way that entrepreneurs can that that might make them less skeptical of afraid or afraid of socialism um i guess is the idea that this is sort of pitched to workers who want to become entrepreneurs or like small business owners it's pitched to people who have expressed a desire for entrepreneurship. And, there, and the, the argument that's made during the podcast is that we're talking about black voters in particular, who many on the left have lamented, haven't gotten on board with the agenda at the same rate as white Americans have or even Latinos have. And therefore, let's talk about the culturally specific things that are going on in the black community. And one that Teslin raised was the value of entrepreneurship because of the ways in which entrepreneurship has been an off-ramp from an, a racially exploitative um, employment system for ever for black Americans. And therefore, demonizing entrepreneurship is demonizing a kind of freedom that black Americans have felt from a racist employment infrastructure. And therefore, instead of just demonizing um entrepreneurship explicitly by saying business bad or tacitly by saying socialism, which in people's minds means anti-business, you can point out that, say, those instincts that are driving you to be entrepreneurs, the resistance from working a day gig and having to work for a boss, I know a way that you can get out from under the thumb of your boss. You can be your own boss by having a worker ownership. Right. I I think, I mean, I I certainly think that the idea of worker co-ops is uh, a better one than say like the sort of, you know, petite bourgeois capitalism, right? Like, Oh, we all just need to be entrepreneurs or something. Um, which obviously isn't feasible because entrepreneurs need laborers. Um, right, well, but that's the thing. I think, I think you're just thinking about this a little bit the wrong way, Thomas. It's not everyone's thinking people don't have to have a f- 
political project. There's no philosophical project here. They're just individuals who are trying to make it and get by who hold out on the dream of working for themselves someday. So no, there's no like theory of the case where they're like tabulating in a, in a moleskin. Okay, can the economy sustain itself with 100% entrepreneurs because this is what the labor force needs to be and this is the percentage of us that can make it. And da, da. That's, that's just not, these are just human beings who are tired of working at a retail job or who are tired of working at a government job even and have decided that they, the only way that they can see from themselves out because maybe because they can't afford to get a master's degree or whatever level of education that would for, you know, launch them forward in the workplace or because they can't, you know, uh, you know, other kinds of barriers to upward mobility that create the caste systems that we have in this country and the lack of economic mobility that exists have figured out the only way that they can get out is through some kind of a hustle. And hustle culture and starting a business and, and figuring out a way and turning one dollar into two and two into four into four into eight. Right. But isn't isn't the isn't sort of our retort there like that sounds great, but unfortunately, like that's not going to happen under capitalism from like no. 95. No, 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 people. no, Thomas. I think the, the gist of this podcast, I'm telling you this and I want everyone to listen really closely. And I really appreciate you asking this question, Thomas. You can say what you just said all day and night. Zero people want to hear that. Like, I just want to be really honest with you. If you go and you tell some person who works a retail job, you know, or works at a Starbucks or works at wherever, who's trying to make ends meet, that, you know, I'm sorry you want to start your own business, but it's not going to work and we have to end capitalism. Everyone's going to close the door in your face. Like, that's just, I, 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 I know what we want, and I know the social, Star Trek socialism argument, and I'm there with you, but you cannot jump people from, you know, the, the only, this is America, the only cognizable vision of what a better life could look like when you turn on the TV or turn on a song, a country music song, a rap song, whatever it is, is that someone hustled their way out of it. There's no songs about Star Trek utopia or how UBI saved everybody. It's, it's, it's Jay-Z and what's better than one billionaire too, especially if he's blacker than you or whatever the freaking lyric is. I'm not a hip hop head. Okay. <laughs> like that, that's just the way it is. You know, like, unfortunately you got to work with what people's vision is and meet them where they are and then slowly expand it. And I think the point that Tesla was trying to make is that for a lot of, whereas I'm sitting here dreaming of flying away on the defiant through the wormhole, other people are <laughs> dreaming of, God, if I could just get, you know, X thousand dollars of capital, I could buy that storefront. Or if I could, if I could just get enough money to quit my job for three months, I could make enough inventory and start selling these bags on eBay. You know, that's where people are. That's, that's what's manageable for people. And so to shit on that dream, because you think they should really be invested in like some cooperative that they've never heard of before. You know, you got to figure out a way to sell the cooperative without shitting on that dream or foreclosing the possibility that whatever they think is the path forward might work out for them. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly don't mean to say, uh, you know, your your life is going to forever be terrible or something. I, I don't think that's probably a good way to pitch it. But <laughs> uh, I think the idea that I have is that, you know, okay, look. This may not be possible under capitalism, but like if we change things, like you could be free to do whatever it is that you want to do, right? To really fulfill your full potential. You want to start a bar. You could do that. You want to do whatever, whatever it is your hustle it is. If what, what, what is the conditional part of the sentence that's unsaid there? 
You can well, be free to do that if what? Eventually, that if what is revolution, right? Right. And that's what I'm saying. Like, you, me, we're all down for the revolution. I got my Bernie Bobblehead doll in a sweater <laughs> with a with a unfortunately pickaxe I don't think or whatever will be part of the revolution right right, right. but i yeah. i'm joking but like the, the point is <laughs> like know. we're all down for the revolution here but like no one wants to hear you can have your dream as soon as we do a revolution people want to know in the next four years of election cycle how their dream is going to be facilitated and that's why even revolutionary types even someone like teslin who literally worked for bernie in 2016 like let's not lose sight of that even if you disagree with let teslin and her approach and think oh gosh that kind of thinking i can't convince someone like that you don't need to convince teslin she worked for bernie in 2016 i didn't you didn't (laughs) she was there in the trenches when nobody believed in bernie right so that's i think that sometimes leftists have to acknowledge that even people who disagree with some part of the predominant leftist lingo still support leftist policies and support someone like Bernie Sanders because something for them is in there. Just like I often bring up the example of my coworker on the campaign whose dad was from Venezuela and who hated socialism but loved Bernie. Just because someone disapproves of something or just because there's a difference of opinion with someone on one aspect of it doesn't mean that person isn't willing to vote for you or they're not on your team. And I think that when it comes to entrepreneurs, I think there's a lot of reason to kick, kick people out of the, the big tent. I think there's some things that are non-negotiable. But after decades of people being lied to by politicians about what's possible, the idea that you're going to convince someone that not only you're going to do a revolution in four years, but that it's going to nurture their benefit in four years, it's too tall an order. you got to be like, we're working on the revolution and in the interim. Here's how we're going to help your small business succeed. And those things don't have to be in conflict. Right. No, I, I mean, I certainly don't think, <laughs> I think pitching the idea that, oh, you know, we're going to have the revolution in four years or whatever is, is misguided. I totally agree with that. Um, but I guess my question is, are we far enough advanced to even, like, is, is there even a left to the point that we can actually be like, oh, yeah, you know, elect us into office and we'll make things happen? Like, well, I don't no, think. There, no, there isn't. No, I don't think, I don't think we have a real left yet we have no. left this i think right. scott robert likes to say this um but not a left mm-hmm. so is the question of i don't know are we getting ahead of ourselves when we're questioning how do we pitch to people how we can deliver things in elections in four years no that's not the question right. that I'm, that's what you brought up that's not what i'm talking about what i'm talking about is how we communicate with people not pitching them on anything, but how to communicate with people and get them to see themselves as a political part of a political group. That okay. is something other than a Democrat. Well, yes, that's important. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But thank you for your question, Thomas. Thank I you. appreciate it. And thank you. Thank you for um, from listening. All right. Tucker. Welcome back, Tucker. What's on your mind today? Hey, Bree. Can you hear me? I can loud and clear. Okay. Sorry about last time when my, service kind of cut out but i just wanted to uh bring back up like talk about it because i don't think i made it as concise as i could have Mm -hmm. progressives if we want to take over the democratic party i was saying how we need to get involved on the county level and that may seem like it's difficult but it's really not all you have to do is know what county you live in look up the county democratic party and look at the calendars and see when they have their meeting. It's only one time a month. So anybody can do it. It's very easy, just like helps you get involved with people in the community. Like it really doesn't take that much 
extra leg work. So I just wanted to get that out because I don't think I was able to say that last time before getting cut out. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And I encourage anybody who has followed Tucker's advice and who wants to report back on what it was like to definitely do that. And let's talk about it on a call. And we could even have a special episode dedicated to people's experiences in dabbling in local politics, going to a town hall meeting, you know, whatever you've done. I want to hear about it because I do think Tucker's right that it's important to demystify the process in the more localized way that ways that we can get involved. Yeah, like I just wanted to make it clear that it is not difficult. I, at 23 years old, a hardcore Jill Stein supporter, like I caucused for Bernie in 2016, like I was like heart, like open socialist, and I was nominated to represent my county to the Democratic Party of Arkansas. Mm -hmm. And I, then I ran for party chair, lost, of course, but I was elected to executive committee as an open socialist, like Jill Stein supporter. Mm -hmm. If I could do that in Arkansas, which is Clinton territory, I'm pretty sure anybody could do it anywhere. Sure, I was the only socialist in the DPA, and sure, it's really not that friendly to socialists. And yeah, you will get criticized and made fun of and insulted and called a Russian agent and all of that crap. <laughs> <laughs> but it's real. I really think that it's, yeah, I'm not joking. I, I can tell you so many times I've been called a Russian agent and a Russian spy and a Green Party infiltrator. It's, it's really funny, but it really does dis, dis, like mystify everything because once you're actually involved, you know how ghost of a shell the Democratic Party is. If like an open socialist Jill Stein supporter can get on the executive committee in a state, anybody could, especially if you're just like not an open socialist or a hardcore Jill Stein supporter. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I, again, thank you for that. And I want to hear back from people who have had that experience. And I really do appreciate you um, grounding us in that way, Tucker. No problem. Y'all have a great night. You too. All right. Case study. Is this case study QB calling in? The one and only famous case study QB. Yeah. Can you hear me? I can. Oh, hey, this is me. What's going on? Great it's, to talk to you. It's so nice to hear from you. For those of you who somehow don't know and have been living under a Twitter rock, Case Study QB is the source of every left media person's cable news clips because, you know, none of us have cable unless we're home at our parents' house for the holidays. <laughs> and he keeps us abreast of what's going on and what nonsense is said about the left on the cable news shows. Thanks for uh, calling in. That's so awesome for you to say that, and I, I try my best, um, you know, I take little breaks here and there, but, you know, you, you had a great clip the other day talking about that student loan um, clip, and I was so proud. You don't know how proud I am every time I see somebody using my clips. It makes me feel like I'm doing it for a reason, and it gives me purpose, so I appreciate that. Case, do you have a Patreon or anything? I do have a Patreon. It's under my Twitter account that um, there's a link, a link tree. And there is a Patreon there, and I have like five. So I appreciate every little bit okay. counts. Definitely, I'm going, I appreciate that. I'm going right mm -hmm. now. I'm opening a window so I can remember to subscribe to your Patreon, and I oh, wow. encourage other people to do so. Thank you so because, much. No, I should be paying you for all of the free labor <laughs> of you calling all these clips. I don't know how any left media show could survive, frankly, without the work that you do. You're so oh, instrumental man. to the left. So it's a very, very, very least I can do here. I see it. Okay, let me just open this. Thank up you so much. I'm, I'm on the New Jersey transit train right now going into work. So don't mind me. I'm, I'm going to try to meet myself in between. But I have 
so much to talk to you, but I'm going to keep it um, as short as possible because I know we're probably at the end of this. And um, the, the main thing I want to talk, and I like this calling. It's my first calling, so I'm going to try to do this with, more with you since it, uh, it was easy for me to just wait and get on here. But anyway, yeah. um, this is my question to you, Bree. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's the big debate between third party versus um, co- the progressives co-oping the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Now, is there a movement who I can um, who, where I can fit, which is like an all the above movement out there? Like, I, I feel like there's nobody in that category much out there. And, um, th- and this is and I mean, when I mean all of the above, I mean all of the this is how serious I am. So definitely, I, I think every district is unique. So that's why you need all of the above. There might be some random district in California where a Green Party can get strong enough to elect somebody to the House. And, but this is my thing. Not only should I think progressives should try to co-op the Democratic Party, which so far is not successful. We got the, you know, the squad. They're trying to do it. But they're getting more co-opted. We need like I think we need like a, a swarm of swamp to try to um, infiltrate mm-hmm. the Democratic Party and, and have that same fervor. But um, I'm also I'm so dead serious that I'm thinking with the Trumpers and with the establishment Republicans fighting and taking chunks of the party, there might be a, a, a for lack of a better word, a populist Republican or I should, you know, say a unicorn progressive Republican that can go slip right through the middle, which, you know, if the Trumpers are taking 30 percent and the establishment taking 30 percent, all you need is like another 33 or whatever percent. And a Republican can slip in there and they don't have to say Medicare for all. But remember, Trump, when he ran in 2016, he was saying, oh, yeah, we need everybody to have health care. And they said, well, how do you mm-hmm. pay for it? Oh, the government will pay for it. That's Medicare for all. But mm-hmm. maybe just don't use that term or something. But I mean, all of the above strategy, means even trying to co-op the Republican Party, which they're going to be super gerrymandering. Um, they're going to have districts where they can only run anyway. So it's like, we might as well try. What do you think about that, Brie? That's interesting. Years and years ago, um, I used to joke with a family friend who's a, a black cardiologist uh, that he should run as a Republican. Mm, okay, Because okay. <laughs> um, he he lives in the South and uh, he's like very respectable, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, kind of personally, socially, not in terms of like being anti-gay marriage or anything, but like just personally the way he lives his life, kind of just conservative nerd, does everything right, you know, dots the I's and crosses the T's, like you me. know, go to church, wears a bow tie, you know, oh, just like... I don't wear yeah, a bow tie, but that sounded like me for a second, but go ahead. <laughs> and, you know, lovely man, he's like kind of like an uncle to me. And I used to joke that he had a, could have a career in politics in front of him because there's no real ideological underpinning to being Republican anymore. It's not like you actually have to believe in small government or anything. Mm-hmm. They don't yeah. care. It's it's all contingent on the issue. Um, so just say you're a Republican mm-hmm. exactly. and do good things. <laughs> exactly. The thing is, um, though, it doesn't. I, yeah, go ahead. I would think the, the only issue I was really thinking about this, like, would be you have to naturally you have to caucus with them, right? So you have to kind of mm-hmm. get to know them, smooch elbows with these guys, and then but you gotta have the conviction of like around. I started off as a Ron Paul supporter way back in like 2007, mm-hmm. and then I credit Tom Hartman for bringing me over to the progressive side because all he mm-hmm. used to do was debate conservatives, and and after hearing a couple of debates, I'm like, hey, this Tom Hartman guy making a lot more sense than these conservatives, and then he brought me over to the um, Bernie side, mm-hmm. but um. The reason I brought up Ron Paul was because he was his nickname was Dr. No. 
Dr. No. So he would, or even to Republicans, he was voting no, 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 no. So mm-hmm. he was a very principled guy. And I would think, like, if you are a progressive um, Republican, you would probably have to vote no, especially even on Republican um, legislation. What do you think? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it, I don't see it would be a problem. You just be like uh, Joe Manchin. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I'm not going to take up too much of your time. I know you're at, at the end of your queue, but I'm definitely going to try to call in more often because I have other. I um, I, if you allow me, real quick, to shout out. I have an initiative called the People's Gauntlet, peoplesgauntlet.com. Mm-hmm. Um, that's basically long story short, actually, and real quick. Also, I agree and concur with the other person saying that you should run for office because <laughs> I am a strong believer that people should run who don't want to run. So as of right now, you definitely don't run and run, which means I want you to run. <laughs> so I don't know if you know socialist MMA, Nick. Yeah, I've been trying, yeah, I've been trying to get him to run as well over there mm. in Kansas. He lives in Kansas and I- I'll add you to my list of trying to court you to run also. <laughs> But um, the people's goal is basically um, you, you talked about how you would have questions and we should have a way to um, workshop those questions. Mm-hmm. Well, my people's is five different gauntlets with between six to ten topics, which you can also say um, questions. And I might that's a good idea. I might have to put a, um, a part of the infrastructure of the people's gauntlet into trying to save like the best answers or something i don't know i will i'll talk i'll think about it but uh anyway i talked enough thank you so much for having me on brie thank you so much and thank you for everything you do um and a reminder that everyone should definitely be following case study on twitter even if you can't financially support uh because he does excellent excellent work thank you so much have a good one you too all right spencer you are the next caller how are you doing i'm doing well brianna how are you I'm doing well, thank you. What's on your mind this evening? Gosh, so much. Uh, I, the first thing I wanted to comment about was really this point of, uh, not really contention, but I guess maybe like a gap in understanding that Nick spoke to at the very beginning, but that mm-hmm. I, I personally like relate to. I felt that dissonance as I was listening to the episode mm-hmm. as a socialist, right? Like I have this, I have this now, like I've spent a lot of time actually figuring out what I feel I, ideologically. Mm-hmm in this process of joining a socialist party and all of that stuff. And I was thinking about, as I was listening to this, that I think the thing about all of this, that maybe some leftists need to remind themselves, myself included, is that like Americans aren't very consistent in their ideology. In my experience, myself, Mm -hmm. again, myself included, like uh, to, to kind of tell a story that, ties together a lot of what I heard today. There is, I forget the gentleman's name who suggested like running within the democratic party. Uh, who called the, in just a now. caller? Oh, just now. Oh, case study yeah. QB. I'm embarrassed. I don't no, actually not, know not case studies. study QB. I'm, I, I know case study. Uh, the guy who was talking about his experience running like as a Jill Stein Green Party voter. Oh, yes. Um, um was that, I, I was that Tucker? I think it was Tucker. I believe Tucker. Sorry for forgetting your name, Tucker. Uh, but to just tell a story about my experience working within the Democratic Party, I was knocking doors for Claire McCaskill. Mm. Uh, as a kid, actually, with my dad in 2012, and my dad had been, like got involved in politics through the Howard Dean campaign, mm. and was very passionate about like progressive stuff as a Democrat. Mm-hmm. And we were knocking doors on doors that he'd already like been to. And I remember him talking to the Democratic Party person, who she had been like flown in, like from the DNC, mm-hmm. like a consultant or something, uh, to not not from around here. And she basically told him like i know you've been there but we need to hit all of these doors i have like numbers i need to hit and dad was making the point of like 
but they're angry like they're frustrated that we're bothering them after they said hey please don't knock anymore like why are you doing this to our future support and she essentially just brushed him off or just gave him an i don't care answer i don't know i remember him telling me this i wasn't actually there mm. uh mm. Uh, anyway, sorry. I'm no, 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 don't apologize. Apartment right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, very, I hope it's not for any. Tell the story. Not for any, um, you know, landlord deficit related reason. I hope <laughs> no, it's just because you're doing I, intermittent I, fasting and trying to like cut weight <laughs> or something. <laughs> no, I'm just dumb, and I only just now put a sweater on. I was getting cold. <laughs> okay. Uh, but so your your point is that yeah, there is ahead, a lot of sorry. ineptitude within the Democratic Party in terms of communicating with voters. Well, I think there's a lot of ways in that they don't, they demonstrate that they don't care about their constituents. I think that is kind of just a microcosm, one that, you know, shows mm-hmm. that they're not rooted in the community uh, and that they, it is corrupted by money. And, and to give Case Study a shout out, I was amazed that he was on here before me. I, I feel honored, honestly, because mm-hmm. I, I have seen so many of his clips. And one of the things that I don't know if it was Case Study or who showed me this, but I remember Claire McCaskill, after I, as a child, knocked doors for her after the 2020 campaign, was went on MS, MSNBC and her, as I've heard you say, tacky ranch kitchen, which is correct <laughs> and fair, and she deserves it. Because she threw my community under the bus. She said transgenders cost us this election in, in so many words. I don't even remember uh, that one. Oh, I, I, I think there was maybe even uh, like uh, a Son Piker video where I saw it. I think that might have been what introduced to me to it if it wasn't Jesus case study. She is the but, worst. Also, it's worst. praxis to make fun of rich people's tackiness. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I'm an authority to speak on that, but I, I'm, <laughs> I'm for it regardless. And I guess all of this is to say that like experiences like that are part of what drove me away from the Democrats. And I also have strategic and political reasons now for mm. not wanting to work within the Democratic Party that I would be happy to talk with someone like Tucker about in good faith. Mm. I get the sense that like people should, if they still believe in that, should do that, in my opinion. I'm not one of them, but sure, go do it. Why not? Better that you're doing that than someone's not doing that. Yeah. Uh, Both I, and, it, I think. It's part of the personal yeah. experience there that made me angry enough as a human to just seek other options. So I guess what I'm saying is uh, there's a lot of ways in which our politics are inconsistent and incoherent. Yeah, people I, I, I think that's really right. And like, I really I do want to say I empathize with um, the first caller. I, I, I feel the dissidence too. you know, like I felt it when I was talking to her and I. I have to remind myself all the time also not to get upset or fr- or frustrated or want to write off voters. I think the thing that is different for me, though, and what's different for Teslin is that, and I'm, I'm reluctant to say this because I know I'm not trying to beat up on the left. I'm not trying to beat up on, on the white left. I'm really not. But, you know, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't hold up a much needed mirror sometimes. And what is true is that sometimes there is an inconsistency between what frustrates, like, the hegemonic views of white leftists to the extent that we can call it that, you know, um, what, what upsets them and makes them want to throw in the towel um, when it, when it comes to what kind of voter they're dealing with. And there definitely is an essence on some parts of the left that has no tolerance at all for any pushback from a black voter. When there's all of the appetite in the world to go toe to toe and argue with some, you know, white Midwestern trucker who also is not on board with the agenda. And I I don't know what to say about that. I don't know what to do about that, but like, you you don't have to believe me when I say Say that. that. 
But no, I, I, I don't disagree. You know, there is there is an appetite. We all ha- like I, I listen to people on calls say things I disagree with all the time, you know, and I don't I don't object to every point. You know, an earlier caller said he was frustrated with identity politics. And I know what I know what they mean. You know, I know what I know what I know what he meant. But I, I, I could have said, you know, what? actually, identity isn't the issue is the weaponization of identity. To I could have done that whole dance. And sometimes people express a frustration with an emphasis on you know, race or some other identity group that I don't agree is a problem. I don't agree that there's an overemphasis on that or that that's what made Bernie lose or anything like that. But, you know, I'm willing to talk to that person and don't necessarily need to make the whole conversation about how much black lives matter in any given moment. Right. If that's my person and they're going to vote, like there's time for those kinds of conversations. Sometimes you got to pick your battle. But sometimes I do feel like when we're talking about, about black voters or two black voters, the, the kind of pushback, either because it's less familiar to white leftists, um, you know, it's just feel, it lands different on the ear because I haven't heard it before. You know, there is this knee jerk reaction that's like, oh, I can't believe you still believe that there's you're like so far away from where we need you to be that that there's no point in talking to you. And I think when we're talking about business interests in particular, because that's like the opposite end of where the left is coming from. When you hear a black person start to talk in that way or, or, or a Latino person start to talk in that way. It can just feel so dissonant and easy to collapse with the f- person who's defending Jeff Bezos. And there is a bourgeois black yeah. version of that that legitimately is defending black, uh, Jeff Bezos. But when you're talking to a working class voter who says things like this, even though it sounds to the ear similar to some of the like dumb, like, you know, um, f- fake kind of op shit that gets put out into the world, it's coming from a sincere place. Like Tesla's point is that it's coming from people who, have had a very different historical relationship to entrepreneurship. You know, so yes. many black people have only had the option of like a government job working at cleaning somebody's house or work going into business for themselves. And that it's just important to have that cultural perspective so that we don't get that angry that fast. And that you understand that even though it sounds like someone is very, very far apart from you politically, that they're actually coming from the same place. And if you get to that root of why they're so invested in entrepreneurship, it's not because they want to, get big and exploit people like Jeff Bezos. It's because they don't see any other path forward to their own security. And the answer to get them out of that, to, to, to talk to them, to get through to them is to say, I hear you. I understand why you're clinging to that particular life raft. Here are ways that I can keep that life raft afloat, but also offer you a whole ass boat to get out of this trouble, these troubled waters you're in. Yeah, I mean that's that is exactly the thing I think, and and I always appreciate your ethos and in, in this and all things of like there's no need to throw away any support for ideas if you can reframe something to somebody that gets you to like their core values and to see that they actually share the end goal that it's not about exploitation as you say even though you know even as a leftist or a socialist you may feel that uh, well capitalism is inherently exploitative I don't disagree but if this person's not there yet. Yeah. Why not still try to meet them where they are? Yeah, 100%. Well, thank you, Spencer. It's always nice to hear from you. Yeah, thank you, Brianna. I appreciate your answer. All right. Allie Rogers might be the last caller because here's the thing. We're coming up on two hours. I ordered a vegan pizza from And Pizza that's been sitting outside my door for at least 45 minutes. It's not because I'm vegan. It's because I'm lactose intolerant. <laughs> And I feel the need to pick it up and get it. But let's hear what you have to say, Ollie. Free, can you hear me? Oh, I can hear you. Uh, Allie, how are you doing? Yeah, hi. Great. 
Um, I will be brief because I'm also lactose intolerant, and that piece <laughs> sounds amazing. Um, I wonder if some of this, like, we're kind of stuck in, like, an American culture problem. Um, I find with a lot of these things, like, the right has really just... Ooh, Ellie, you cut out. Um, the right has just... Or, like, captured... Um, yeah. Ooh, sorry. Kind of um, um, taken full hold of ideas like innovation mm-hmm. or entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I don't think there's anything, like, inherently you know, conservative necessarily about those values. It's just, it just so happens that like we live in like a corporate hellscape here mm-hmm. um, where the uh, dividing lines happen to, um, uh, to, to like fall under those uh, type of values. Mm-hmm. So for someone like my dad, for instance, he's a kind of a conservative dude, but I really feel like he's only conservative because he fell out of love with, the Democratic Party, like, back in the 90s, mm. um, and he lives in California, and kind of, uh, you know, I think I would be really disgusted as well with, like, swimming in sort of, like, uh, virtue signaling, like, PMC culture, and he, mm. he just, like, didn't really know that there's an alternative, um, but he's someone who's very much uh, always emphasizing, like, personal responsibility and, like, small business and stuff, and anyways, I just wonder if, or I'm more interested in, um, you you know, stepping back and seeing, like, how maybe people um, in places like Italy or Spain who have um, some uh, more co-op-centered economies, like, how they feel about entrepreneurship or these kind of like values or words that we associate with um, like being like the bad right or like bad Mm -hmm. capitalist. I don't know. That's a little bit aimless, but I wonder what you think. No, it's not aimless at all. Thank you for that. I I think that, I think that that's right. I think that doing the Richard Wolf thing and coming up with concrete examples that demonstrate that there's an alternative are really helpful. And you know, I've said it at once, I've said it a thousand times, is that the reason Star Trek is useful to me is because it helped me to understand that the world could operate different. Like Star Trek, unlike a lot of other sci-fi shows, it does a lot to explain, well, not a lot, that's overstating it a little, but it explains its eternal eco- internal economy. It makes references to how they got away from a monetary system. It, it really... There's, there's a book called Treconomics that I have behind me on my shelf. You know, there is, it helps you really understand that the way the world is, isn't the, isn't dictated by some like tablet that came down from God. It really is a human invention and we can invent other things that are better. When Richard Wolff talks about the emergence of capitalism, just talking about capitalism as something that came out of feudalism and that hasn't always been, I think is a revolutionary project in and of itself, given how inept our education system is. Because it helps people understand, oh, this was a choice. This was a choice. Like, that is a very basic phenomenon. But, like, so many people truly don't understand that there could there's any alternative to capitalism other than the worst, you know, Hollywood depiction of socialism that came out of Cold War politics, you know? 
So I do think that talking about international examples is useful, but I also think that talking about localized examples is useful too for the reasons I think that it was Day who said Americans are patriots and they, they want to be the best at stuff and to have an American example and to show how there's um, you know effective models in the states goes a really long way. I mean, Republicans are always talking about that, right, with, when they're talking about schools and they say not one model doesn't fit everything. you got to have a diversity of approaches across the state so that you can have a test kitchen to see what works and then we can apply it more broadly. Well, okay, let's look at the test kitchens that are going on in our own nation and hold them up as models um, for the broader case. And I also think your point about owning, like letting the Republicans have all these words and concepts that aren't fundamentally conservative in nature is spot on. We did an episode, you might be aware, on patriotism with Gerald Horn, uh, you know, talking about whether or not the left should try to reclaim that term and people feel very differently about it. But, you know, I think I, I can say, even if I don't love its asymmetry, that the American flag is aesthetic. Like, I, you know, you can, you can say things like that without being an enemy of socialism. You know, like, that's kind of insane. You know, I can say that I, look, I was born right here in our nation's capital. On some level, I am, the American traditions are my traditions. I am culturally American. I know that more than most folks because I spent a lot of my childhood overseas and had to spend a lot of my youth defending America against, against a bunch of bratty Belgians and whatever else. And, you know, there are lots of things that I love about this country, including the people in it. I'm enormously proud of my tradition as a black American in this, this country. And a lot of black Americans are deeply patriotic. A lot of Latinos, a lot of people, immigrants are deeply patriotic. When I was a clerk, um, one of the things that we did at the federal courthouse was the judge, you know, swore, swore people in um, or, or when they nationalized. And my judge was conservative. He was a Bush appointee, but he used to say how much he loved those um, services because it was a room full of people who, regardless of their politics, had worked really hard and were enormously proud to get to be an American. And their whole families came and they're wearing red, white, and blue and they have like little flags and like sparkler hat things like antenna. And it's really, it's cute. Like it's sweet. It's like heartening. It's heartwarming. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are people on the left that will like cringe at the idea that being heartwarming and saying that we should have no borders and it's just nationalism and it's just jingoism. And it's like, okay, like I get that argument, but I don't know how you're going to be a populist. I don't know how you're going <laughs> to, I mean, you can, right. you can take the long game and convince people that like, uh, you know, any kind of that, that sort of pride is easily weaponized into militarism and imperialism and jingoism. Like I get it, but in the short game, you know, people like things. Yeah. <laughs> people like barbecues and hot dogs and America the Beautiful. And yes, this national anthem is about slavery. I like totally, I'm totally <laughs> with you. Notice I said America the Beautiful. That's my preferred one. <laughs> mm-hmm. But like, I, there's a middle ground there, you know? And certainly these concepts like prosperity and freedom. Yeah. Like, those are leftist concepts as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that's yes. what we want. Very pro-prosperity. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm big uh, on freedom. If we do merch, should we do sweatshirts that say big on freedom? Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, back to Richard Wolf really quick. Something I appreciate he says is kind of like, I, I don't care what you call it, but let's look at this model. You know, like, we don't mm-hmm. have to call it socialism. We can yeah. just look at this model. Um, anyway, yeah. I really appreciate that. Um, go enjoy your pizza. 
Thank you, Allie, and thank you for calling in. I want to say to Vinny and Curious and Free Assange, Chris and John and Ahmed, I really appreciate you being in this queue. And this is probably only the second time I've not finished the whole queue. And I just want points for that. <laughs> but I, I want to say that, like, we've gone for two hours. I think that's a really strong run. And we will be back on uh, Friday. Around this time, I will either set it for 6 or 8. Those tend to be the times that I am most free and carve out around dinner hours. And I will be happy to answer your questions then. Hop immediately into the queue on Friday, and I will get to your questions, Vinny and Curious and Free Assange, Chris and John and Ahmed. And you can write down whatever question you have now, and I promise I will get to it. For those of you who don't already subscribe and haven't already listened, you can hear the episode that we've been talking about with Teslin Figaro at patreon.com slash podcast. You can also watch the full episode. There's, there's videos of all of the premium content. And don't forget to go over and check out what I think is about a 20-minute clip that was just posted this afternoon from the episode additional to the 10-minute clip that we posted on yesterday. And I'm going to play us out with a new clip that I just put up a little a few minutes before we went live here today, so most of you haven't heard, which puts into context some of what we've been talking about with Teslin and the entrepreneurship conversation. And finally, I will say before I start playing that clip and play us out, that Teslin has a podcast called Straight Shot No Chaser. And you can hear all the time, either there or at the Black News Channel, um, which you can also be watching and listening to to get an insight into what's happening in a different slice of politics in this country. And also she goes frequently onto Fox News and fights the battles that need to be fought in the lion's den. So props to her. She gets a lot of negative feedback because she's a black woman going into a conservative space to speak progressive truths. You know how that goes. And so everyone should show her some love on social media and consider following her on one of the places that she appears frequently. Without further ado, thank you all again. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to The Debrief. And here is Teslin. feel what I have heard black business folk feel completely homeless homeless because if they really align with what works for their business it's probably going to lean more moderate or more right but they don't want to be a part of the Republican yeah. Party so who grabs those folks up like who who gets those folks and 90% of them are are uh once one employee of um self-employed so they're still working somewhere so how can you marry those two things and not just all be $15 an hour part of me is torn here because while I certainly appreciate a desire for people to do what makes them happy and pursue whatever creative endeavor or sell whatever it is that they love to do and make what they want to make so much of what would support that effort are things like not having to worry about health care not worry about how to pay your employer's health care, which is the number one expense for small businesses, and also not having to worry about, can I actually leave my job and commit to this thing that I prefer doing? No, because I have to keep drawing health insurance from my mainstream employer. No doubt. And another part of it is me realizing that some part of everyone of, of hustle culture is organic, but another part of hustle culture is so many people not being paid sufficient wages at their mm -hmm. primary job. And a lot mm -hmm. of people would love to have one job. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not... You know, maybe they prefer their hustle job over their main job as their real job. But the point of which is most people who are working these multiple jobs are doing so because the first one just isn't enough. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so I am resisting that you're not doing this, but I'm resisting anybody who might hear this and frame this as an either or like right. de-emphasize $15 minimum wage or de-emphasize uh, Medicare for all and make, you know, and, and have a completely different message for entrepreneurs. Cause I do think that entrepreneurs benefit from a lot of these programs as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. And, and if it's framed that way, and I'm glad you're making it clear that we're not saying either or we're talking about the beauty of, you know, how that conversation can be had. The way you just framed it with healthcare, I never hear it framed that way yeah. on the left. My staff and firm that I started in Orlando, Florida, I started being laid off mm-hmm. at 300 employees two years later. We yeah. had to shut down yeah. the business because healthcare reform kicked in mm-hmm. and we could not afford. Our rates mm-hmm. had to go up to say, how are we going to cover healthcare? Mm-hmm. Healthcare reform actually hurt my business, although everybody was getting healthcare. It hurt the business owner, which is why you see the right saying, no, we, it's going to hurt our business. But when it's framed, like you're saying, well, if everybody could get health care outside of work, that right. burden is not on me. So my business right. actually could thrive or right. a lot of business people don't like it because they want using the other side of it. They want the person to be tied to them, indebted to them like a Correct. slave just to keep the health care. So Correct. I get it makes the market more competitive. Uh, um, competitive when you're able to bounce around and say, I can just work where I want to work and I don't have to be tied to healthcare. So that's an absolute great way to frame it. But yeah. that conversation is never had on the left. It's just, this is just what we need to do. And that's just it because people need healthcare. And that's just it. 